The Power of Habit Lisa, according to her file, was 34 years old, had started smoking and drinking when she was 16, and had struggled with obesity for most of her life. At one point, in her mid-twenties, collection agencies were hounding her to recover $10,000 in debts. The woman in front of the researchers today, however, was lean and vibrant, with the toned legs of a runner. She looked a decade younger than the photos in her chart, and she could out-exercise anyone in the room. According to the most recent report in her file, Lisa had no outstanding debts, didn't drink, and was in her 39th month at a graphic design firm. How long since your last cigarette? One of the physicians asked, starting down the list of questions. Almost four years, she said, and I've lost 60 pounds, and run a marathon since then. She had also started a master's degree, and bought a home. It had been an eventful stretch. The scientists in the room included, neurologists, psychologists, geneticists, and a sociologist. For the past three years, with funding from the National Institutes of Health, they had poked and prodded Lisa, and more than two dozen other former smokers. Chronic overeaters, problem drinkers, obsessive shoppers, and people with other destructive habits. All of the participants had one thing in common, they had remade their lives in relatively short periods of time. The researchers wanted to understand how. So they measured subjects' vital signs, installed video cameras inside their homes, to watch their daily routines, sequenced portions of their DNA, and with technologies that allowed them to peer inside people's skulls in real time, watched blood and electrical impulses flowed through their brains while they were exposed to temptations, such as cigarette smoke and lavish meals. The researchers' goal was to figure out, how habits work on a neurological level, and what it took to make them change. I know you've told this story a dozen times, the doctor said to Lisa, but some of my colleagues have only heard it second-hand. Would you mind describing again how you gave up cigarettes? Sure, Lisa said. It started in Cairo. The vacation had been something of a rash decision, she explained. A few months earlier, her husband had come home from work and announced that he was leaving her because he was in love with another woman. It took Lisa a while to process the betrayal and absorb the fact that she was actually getting a divorce. There was a period of mourning, then a period of obsessively spying on him, following his new girlfriend around town, calling her after midnight, and hanging up. Then there was the evening Lisa showed up at the girlfriend's house, drunk, pounding on her door and screaming that she was going to burn the condo down. It wasn't a great time for me, Lisa said. I had always wanted to see the pyramids, and my credit cards weren't maxed out yet, so on her first morning in Cairo, Lisa woke at dawn to the sound of the call to prayer from a nearby mosque. It was pitch black inside her hotel room. Half blind and jet-lagged, she reached for a cigarette. She was so disoriented that she didn't realize until she smelled burning plastic that she was trying to light a pen, not a Marlboro. She had spent the past four months crying, binge-eating, unable to sleep, and feeling ashamed, helpless, depressed, and angry, all at once. Lying in bed, she broke down. It was like this wave of sadness, she said. I felt like everything I had ever wanted had crumbled. 
I couldn't even smoke right. And then I started thinking about my ex-husband, and how hard it would be to find another job when I got back, and how much I was going to hate it and how unhealthy I felt all the time. I got up and knocked over a water jug and it shattered on the floor, and I started crying even harder. I felt desperate, like I had to change something, at least one thing I could control. She showered and left the hotel. As she rode through Cairo's rutted streets in a taxi and then onto the dirt roads leading to the Sphinx, the pyramids of Giza, and the vast, endless desert around them, her self-pity, for a brief moment, gave way, pity, Lisa had focused on changing just one habit, smoking, at first. Everyone in the study had gone through a similar process. By focusing on one pattern what is known as a keystone habit, Lisa had taught herself, how to reprogram the other routines in her life, as well. It's not just individuals who are capable of such shifts. When companies focus on changing habits, whole organizations can transform. Firms such as Procter & Gamble, Starbucks, Alcoa, and Target have seized on this insight to influence how work gets done, how employees communicate, and without customers realizing it the way people shop. I want to show you one of your most recent scans, a researcher told Lisa near the end of her exam. He pulled up a picture on a computer screen that showed images from inside her head. When you see food, these areas he pointed to a place near the center of her brain which are associated with craving and hunger, are still active. Your brain still produces the urges that made you overeat. However, there's new activity in this area he pointed to the region closest to her forehead where we believe behavioral inhibition and self-discipline starts. That activity has become more pronounced each time you've come in. Lisa was the scientist's favorite participant because her brain scans were so compelling, so useful in creating a map of where behavioral patterns habits reside within our minds. You're helping us understand how a decision becomes an automatic behavior, the doctor told her. Everyone in the room felt like they were on the brink of something important. And they were. When you woke up this morning, what did you do first? Did you hop in the shower, check your email, or grab a donut from the kitchen counter? Did you brush your teeth before or after you toweled off? Tie the left or right shoe first? What did you say to your kids on your way out the door? Which route did you drive to work? When you got to your desk, did you deal with email, chat with a colleague, or jump into writing a memo? Salad or hamburger for lunch? When you got home, did you put on your sneakers and go for a run, or pour yourself a drink and eat dinner in front of the TV? All our life, so far as it has definite form is but a mass of habits, William James wrote in 1892. William, most of the choices we make each day, may feel like the products of well-considered decision-making, but they're not. They are habits. And though each habit means relatively little on its own, over time, the meals we order, what we say to our kids each night, whether we save or spend, how often we exercise, and the way we organize our thoughts and work routines have enormous impacts on our health, productivity, financial security, and happiness. One paper published by a Duke University researcher in 2006 found that more than 40% of the actions people performed each day weren't actual decisions, but habits. William James like countless others, 
from Aristotle to Oprah spent much of his life trying to understand why habits exist. But only in the past two decades, have scientists and marketers really begun understanding how habits work, and more importantly, how they change. This book is divided into three parts. The first section focuses on how habits emerge within individual lives. It explores the neurology of habit formation, how to build new habits and change old ones, and the methods, for instance, that one adman used to push toothbrushing, from an obscure practice into a national obsession. It shows how Procter & Gamble turned a spray named Febreze into a billion-dollar business, by taking advantage of consumers' habitual urges, how Alcoholics Anonymous reforms life by attacking habits at the core of addiction, and how coach Tony Dungy, reversed the fortunes of the worst team in the National Football League, by focusing on his players' automatic reactions to subtle on-field cues. The second part examines the habits of successful companies and organizations. It details how an executive named Paul O'Neill, before he became Treasury Secretary, remade a struggling aluminium manufacturer into the top performer, in the Dow Jones industry by focusing on one keystone habit, and how Starbucks turned a high school dropout, into a top manager, by instilling habits designed to strengthen his willpower. It describes why even, the most talented surgeons can make catastrophic mistakes, when a hospital's organizational habits go awry. The third part looks at the habits of societies. It recounts how Martin Luther King, and the civil rights movement succeeded, in part, by changing the ingrained social habits of Montgomery, Alabama and why a similar focus helped a young pastor named Rick Warren, build the nation's largest church in Saddleback Valley, California. Finally, it explores thorny ethical questions, such as whether a murderer in Britain should go free, if he can convincingly argue that his habits led him to kill. Each chapter revolves around a central argument, habits can be changed, if we understand how they work. This book draws on hundreds of academic studies, interviews with more than 300 scientists and executives, and research conducted at dozens of companies. For an index of resources, please see the book's notes and www.thepowerofhabit.com, it focuses on habits as they are technically defined, the choices that all of us deliberately make at some point, and then stop thinking about but continue doing, often every day. At one point, we all consciously decided how much to eat and what to focus on, when we go to the office, how often to have a drink or when to go for a jog. Then we stopped making a choice and the behavior became automatic. It's a natural consequence of our neurology. And by understanding how it happens, you can rebuild those patterns in whichever way you choose. I first became interested in the science of habits eight years ago, as a newspaper reporter in Baghdad. The U.S. military, it occurred to me as I watched it in action, is one of the biggest habit formation experiments in history. Basic training teaches soldiers carefully designed habits for how to shoot, think, and communicate under fire. On the battlefield, every command that's issued draws on behaviors practiced to the point of automation. The entire organization relies on endlessly rehearsed routines for building bases, setting strategic priorities, and deciding how to respond to attacks. In those early days of the war, when the insurgency was spreading and death tolls were mounting, 
commanders were looking for habits they could instill among soldiers and Iraqis that might create a durable peace. I had been in Iraq for about two months, when I heard about an officer conducting, an important habit modification program in Kufa, a small city 90 miles south of the capital. He was an army major, who had analyzed videotapes of recent riots, and had identified a pattern, violence was usually preceded by a crowd of Iraqis, gathering in a plaza, or other open space and, over the course of several hours, growing in size. Food vendors would show up, as well as spectators. Then, someone would throw a rock or a bottle, and all hell would break loose. When the major met with Kufa's mayor, he made an odd request, could they keep food vendors out of the plazas? Sure, the mayor said. A few weeks later, a small crowd gathered near the Masjid al-Kufa, or Great Mosque of Kufa. Throughout the afternoon, it grew in size. Some people started chanting angry slogans. Iraqi police, sensing trouble, radioed the base and asked U.S. troops to stand by. At dusk, the crowd started getting restless and hungry. People looked for the kebab sellers normally filling the plaza, but there were none to be found. The spectators left. The chanters became dispirited. By 8 p.m., everyone was gone. When I visited the base near Kufa, I talked to the major. You wouldn't necessarily think about a crowd's dynamics in terms of habits, he told me. But he had spent his entire career getting drilled in the psychology of habit formation. At boot camp, he had absorbed habits for loading his weapon, falling asleep in a war zone, maintaining focus amid the chaos of battle, and making decisions while exhausted and overwhelmed. He had attended classes that taught him habits for saving money, exercising each day, and communicating with bunkmates. As he moved up the ranks, he learned the importance of organizational habits in ensuring that subordinates could make decisions without constantly asking permission, and how the right routines made it easier to work alongside people he normally couldn't stand. And now, as an impromptu nation builder, he was seeing how crowds and cultures abided by many of the same rules. In some sense, he said, a community was a giant collection of habits occurring among thousands of people that, depending on how they're influenced, could result in violence or peace. In addition to removing the food vendors, he had launched dozens of different experiments in Kufa to influence residents' habits. There hadn't been a riot since he arrived. Understanding habits is the most important thing I've learned in the army, the major told me. It's changed everything about how I see the world. You want to fall asleep fast and wake up feeling good? Pay attention to your nighttime patterns and what you automatically do when you get up. You want to make running easy? Create triggers to make it a routine. I drill my kids on this stuff. My wife and I write out habit plans for our marriage. This is all we talk about in command meetings. Not one person in Kufa would have told me that we could influence crowds by taking away the kebab stands, but once you see everything as a bunch of habits, it's like someone gave you a flashlight and a crowbar and you can get to work. The major was a small man from Georgia. He was perpetually spitting either sunflower seeds or chewing tobacco into a cup. He told me that prior to entering the military, 
his best career option had been repairing telephone lines, or, possibly, becoming a methamphetamine entrepreneur, a path some of his high school peers had chosen to less success. Now, he oversaw 800 troops in one of the most sophisticated fighting organizations on earth. I am telling you, if a hick like me can learn this stuff, anyone can. I tell my soldiers all the time, there's nothing you can't do if you get the habits right. In the past decade, our understanding of the neurology and psychology of habits and the way patterns work within our lives, societies, and organizations has expanded in ways we couldn't have imagined 50 years ago. We now know why habits emerge, how they change, and the science behind their mechanics. We know how to break them into parts and rebuild them to our specifications. We understand, how to make people eat less, exercise more, work more efficiently, and live healthier lives. Transforming a habit isn't necessarily easy or quick. It isn't always simple. But it is possible. And now we understand how. The Habit Loop How Habits Work In the fall of 1993, a man who would upend much of what we know about habits, walked into a laboratory in San Diego for a scheduled appointment. He was elderly, a shade over six feet tall, and neatly dressed in a blue button-down shirt. His thick white hair would have inspired envy at any 50th high school reunion. Arthritis caused him to limp slightly as he paced the laboratory's hallways, and he held his wife's hand, walking slowly, as if unsure about what each new step would bring. About a year earlier, Eugene Pauly, or as he would come to be known in medical literature, had been at home in Playa del Rey, preparing for dinner, when his wife mentioned that their son, Michael, was coming over. Who's Michael? Eugene asked. Your child, said his wife, Beverly. You know, the one we raised? Eugene looked at her blankly. Who is that? he asked. The next day, Eugene started vomiting and writhing with stomach cramps. Within 24 hours, his dehydration was so pronounced that a panicked Beverly took him to the emergency room. His temperature started rising, hitting 105 degrees as he sweated a yellow halo of perspiration onto the hospital's sheets. He became delirious, then violent, yelling and pushing when nurses tried to insert and fall into his arm. Only after sedation was a physician able to slide a long needle between two vertebrae in the small of his back and extract a few drops of cerebrospinal fluid. The doctor performing the procedure sensed trouble immediately. The fluid surrounding the brain and spinal nerves is a barrier against infection and injury. In healthy individuals, it is clear and quick-flowing, moving with an almost silky rush through a needle. The sample from Eugene's spine was cloudy and dripped out sluggishly, as if filled with microscopic grit. When the results came back from the laboratory, Eugene's physicians learned, why he was ill, he was suffering from viral encephalitis, a disease caused by a relatively harmless virus that produces cold sores, fever blisters, and mild infections on the skin. In rare cases, however, the virus can make its way into the brain, inflicting catastrophic damage as it chews through the delicate folds of tissue where our thoughts, dreams and according to some, souls reside. Eugene's doctors told Beverly there was nothing they could do to counter the damage already done, 
but a large dose of antiviral drugs might prevent it from spreading. Eugene slipped into a coma and for ten days was close to death. Gradually, as the drugs fought the disease, his fever receded and the virus disappeared. When he finally awoke, he was weak and disoriented and couldn't swallow properly. He couldn't form sentences and would sometimes gasp, as if he had momentarily forgotten how to breathe. But he was alive. Eventually, Eugene was well enough for a battery of tests. The doctors were amazed to find that his body including his nervous system appeared largely unscathed. He could move his limbs and was responsive to noise and light. Scans of his head, though, revealed ominous shadows near the center of his brain. The virus had destroyed an oval of tissue close to where his cranium and spinal column met. He might not be the person you remember, one doctor warned Beverly. You need to be ready if your husband is gone. Eugene was moved to a different wing of the hospital. Within a week, he was swallowing easily. Another week, and he started talking normally, asking for jello and salt, flipping through television channels and complaining about boring soap operas. By the time he was discharged to a rehabilitation center five weeks later, Eugene was walking down hallways and offering nurses unsolicited advice about their weekend plans. I don't think I've ever seen anyone come back like this, a doctor told Beverly. I don't want to raise your hopes, but this is amazing. Beverly, however, remained concerned. In the rehab hospital it became clear that the disease had changed her husband in unsettling ways. Eugene couldn't remember which day of the week it was, for instance, or the names of his doctors and nurses, no matter how many times they introduced themselves. Why do they keep asking me all these questions? He asked Beverly one day after a physician left his room. When he finally returned home, things got even stranger. Eugene didn't seem to remember their friends. He had trouble following conversations. Some mornings, he would get out of bed, walk into the kitchen, cook himself bacon and eggs, then climb back under the covers and turn on the radio. Forty minutes later, he would do the same thing, get up, cook bacon and eggs, climb back into bed, and fiddle with the radio. Then he would do it again. Alarmed, Beverly reached out to specialists, including a researcher at the University of California, San Diego, who specialized in memory loss. Which is how, on a sunny fall day, Beverly and Eugene found themselves in a nondescript building on the university campus, holding hands as they walked slowly down a hallway. They were shown into a small exam room. Eugene began chatting with a young woman who was using a computer. Having been in electronics over the years, I'm amazed at all this, he said, gesturing at the machine she was typing on. When I was younger, that thing would have been in a couple of six-foot racks and taken up this whole room. The woman continued pecking at the keyboard. Eugene chuckled. That is incredible, he said. All those printed circuits and diodes and triodes. When I was in electronics, there would have been a couple of six-foot racks holding that thing. A scientist entered the room and introduced himself. He asked Eugene how old he was. Oh, let's see, fifty-nine or sixty? Eugene replied. He was seventy-one years old. The scientist started typing on the computer. 
Eugene smiled and pointed at it. That is really something, he said. You know, when I was in electronics there would have been a couple of six-foot racks holding that thing. The scientist was 52-year-old Larry Squire, a professor who had spent the past three decades studying the neuroanatomy of memory. His specialty was exploring how the brain stores events. His work with Eugene, however, would soon open a new world to him and hundreds of other researchers, who have reshaped our understanding of how habits function. Squire's studies would show that, even someone who can't remember his own age, or almost anything else can develop habits, that seem inconceivably complex, until you realize that everyone relies on similar neurological processes every day. His and others' research would help reveal the subconscious mechanisms, that impact the countless choices that seem, as if they're the products of well-reasoned thought, but actually are influenced by urges, most of us barely recognize or understand. By the time Squire met Eugene, he had already been studying images of his brain for weeks. The scans indicated that, almost all the damage within Eugene's skull, was limited to a 5-centimeter area near the center of his head. The virus had almost entirely destroyed his medial temporal lobe, a sliver of cells which scientists suspected was responsible for all sorts of cognitive tasks, such as recall of the past and the regulation of some emotions. The completeness of the destruction didn't surprise Squire Viral Encephalitis consumes tissue with a ruthless, almost surgical, precision. What shocked him was how familiar the images seemed. Thirty years earlier, as a PhD student at MIT, Squire had worked alongside a group studying a man known as H.M., one of the most famous patients in medical history. When H.M. his real name was Henry Malazan, scientists shrouded his identity throughout his life, was seven years old, he was hit by a bicycle and landed hard on his head. Soon afterward, he developed seizures and started blacking out. At sixteen, he had his first seizure, the kind that affects the entire brain, soon, he was losing consciousness up to ten times a day. By the time he turned twenty-seven, H.M. was desperate. Anticonvulsive drugs hadn't helped. He was smart, but couldn't hold a job. He still lived with his parents. H.M. wanted a normal existence. So he sought help from a physician, whose tolerance for experimentation outweighed his fear of malpractice. Studies had suggested that, an area of the brain called the hippocampus might play a role in seizures. When the doctor proposed cutting into H.M.'s head, lifting up the front portion of his brain, and, with a small straw, sucking out the hippocampus and some surrounding tissue from the interior of his skull, H.M. gave his consent. The surgery occurred in 1953, and as H.M. healed, his seizures slowed. Almost immediately, however, it became clear that his brain had been radically altered. H.M. knew his name and that his mother was from Ireland. He could remember the 1929 stock market crash, and news reports about the invasion of Normandy. But almost everything that came afterward, all the memories, experiences, and struggles from most of the decade before his surgery had been erased. When a doctor began testing H.M. memory, by showing him playing cards and lists of numbers, he discovered that H.M. couldn't retain any new information for more than 20 seconds or so. 
From the day of his surgery until his death in 2008, every person H.M. met, every song he heard, every room he entered, was a completely fresh experience. His brain was frozen in time. Each day, he was befuddled by the fact that, someone could change the television channel by pointing a black rectangle of plastic at the screen. He introduced himself to his doctors and nurses, over and over, dozens of times each day. I loved learning about HM, because memory seemed like such a tangible, exciting way to study the brain, Squire told me. I grew up in Ohio, and I can remember, in first grade, my teacher handing everyone crayons, and I started mixing all the colors together to see if it would make black. Why have I kept that memory, but I can't remember what my teacher looked like? Why does my brain decide that one memory is more important than another? When Squire received the images of Eugene's brain, he marveled at how similar it seemed to H. Ms. There were empty, walnut-sized chunks in the middle of both their heads. Eugene's memory just like H.M.'s had been removed. As Squire began examining Eugene, though, he saw that this patient was different from H.M. in some profound ways. Whereas, almost everyone knew within minutes of meeting H.M., that something was amiss, Eugene could carry on conversations and perform tasks that wouldn't alert a casual observer, that anything was wrong. The effects of H.M.'s surgery had been so debilitating that, he was institutionalized for the remainder of his life. Eugene, on the other hand, lived at home with his wife. H.M. couldn't really carry on conversations. Eugene, in contrast, had an amazing knack for guiding almost any discussion to a topic he was comfortable talking about at length, such as satellites he had worked as a technician for an aerospace company or the weather. Squire started his exam of Eugene by asking him about his youth. Eugene talked about the town where he had grown up in Central California, his time in the Merchant Marines, a trip he had taken to Australia as a young man. He could remember most of the events in his life, that had occurred prior to about 1960. When Squire asked about later decades, Eugene politely changed the topic and said he had trouble recollecting some recent events. Squire conducted a few intelligence tests, and found that Eugene's intellect was still sharp for a man who couldn't remember the last three decades. What's more, Eugene still had all the habits he had formed in his youth, so whenever Squire gave him a cup of water, or complimented him on a particularly detailed answer, Eugene would thank him and offer a compliment in return. Whenever someone entered the room, Eugene would introduce himself and ask about their day. But when Squire asked Eugene, to memorize a string of numbers or describe the hallway outside the laboratory's door, the doctor found his patient couldn't retain any new information for more than a minute or so. When someone showed Eugene photos of his grandchildren, he had no idea who they were. When Squire asked if he remembered getting sick, Eugene said he had no recollection of his illness or the hospital stay. In fact, Eugene almost never recalled that he was suffering from amnesia. His mental image of himself didn't include memory loss, and since he couldn't remember the injury, he couldn't conceive of anything being wrong. In the months after meeting Eugene, Squire conducted experiments that tested the limits of his memory. By then, 
Eugene and Beverly had moved from Playa del Rey to San Diego to be closer to their daughter, and Squire often visited their home for his exams. One day, Squire asked Eugene to sketch a layout of his house. Eugene couldn't draw a rudimentary map showing where the kitchen or bedroom was located. When you get out of bed in the morning, how do you leave your room? Squire asked. You know, Eugene said, I'm not really sure. Squire took notes on his laptop, and as the scientist typed, Eugene became distracted. He glanced across the room and then stood up, walked into a hallway, and opened the door to the bathroom. A few minutes later, that oil had flushed, the faucet ran, and Eugene, wiping his hands on his pants, walked back into the living room and sat down again in his chair next to Squire. He waited patiently for the next question. At the time, no one wondered how a man who couldn't draw a map of his home was able to find the bathroom without hesitation. But that question, and others like it, would eventually lead to a trail of discoveries that has transformed our understanding of habit's power. It would help spark a scientific revolution that today involves hundreds of researchers who are learning, for the first time, to understand all the habits that influence our lives. As Eugene sat at the table, he looked at Squire's laptop. That's amazing, he said, gesturing at the computer. You know, when I was in electronics, there would have been a couple of six-foot racks holding that thing. In the first few weeks, after they moved into their new house, Beverly tried to take Eugene outside each day. The doctors had told her, that it was important for him to get exercise, and if Eugene was inside too long he drove Beverly crazy, asking her the same questions over and over in an endless loop. So each morning and afternoon, she took him on a walk around the block, always together and always along the same route. The doctors had warned Beverly that she would need to monitor Eugene constantly. If he ever got lost, they said, he would never be able to find his way home. But one morning, while she was getting dressed, Eugene slipped out the front door. He had a tendency to wander from room to room, so it took her a while to notice he was gone. When she did, she became frantic. She ran outside and scanned the street. She couldn't see him. She went to the neighbor's house and pounded on the windows. Their homes looked similar maybe Eugene had become confused and had gone inside. She ran to the door and rang the bell until someone answered. Eugene wasn't there. She sprinted back to the street, running up the block, screaming Eugene's name. She was crying. What if he had wandered into traffic? How would he tell anyone where he lived? She had been outside for fifteen minutes already, looking everywhere. She ran home to call the police. When she burst through the door, she found Eugene in the living room, sitting in front of the television watching the History Channel. Her tears confused him. He didn't remember leaving, he said, didn't know where he'd been, and couldn't understand why she was so upset. Then Beverly saw a pile of pine cones on the table, like the ones she'd seen in a neighbor's yard down the street. She came closer and looked at Eugene's hands. His fingers were sticky with sap. That's when she realized that Eugene had gone for a walk by himself. He had wandered down the street and collected some souvenirs. And he had found his way home. Soon, Eugene was going for walks every morning. 
Beverly tried to stop him, but it was pointless. Even if I told him to stay inside, he wouldn't remember a few minutes later, she told me. I followed him a few times to make sure he wouldn't get lost, but he always came back. Sometimes he would return with pine cones or rocks. Once he came back with a wallet, another time with a puppy. He never remembered where they came from. When Squire and his assistants heard about these walks, they started to suspect that something was happening inside Eugene's head, that didn't have anything to do with his conscious memory. They designed an experiment. One of Squire's assistants visited the house one day and asked Eugene to draw a map of the block where he lived. He couldn't do it. How about where his house was located on the street, she asked. He doodled a bit, then forgot the assignment. She asked him to point out which doorway led to the kitchen. Eugene looked around the room. He didn't know, he said. She asked Eugene what he would do if he were hungry. He stood up, walked into the kitchen, opened a cabinet, and took down a jar of nuts. Later that week, a visitor joined Eugene on his daily stroll. They walked for about fifteen minutes through the perpetual spring of Southern California, the scent of bougainvillea heavy in the air. Eugene didn't say much, but he always led the way and seemed to know where he was going. He never asked for directions. As they rounded the corner near his house, the visitor asked Eugene where he lived. I don't know, exactly, he said. Then he walked up his sidewalk opened his front door, went into the living room, and turned on the television. It was clear to Squire that Eugene was absorbing new information. But where inside his brain was that information residing? How could someone find a jar of nuts when he couldn't say where the kitchen was located? Or find his way home when he had no idea which house was his? How, Squire wondered, were new patterns forming inside Eugene's damaged brain? Within the building that houses the Brain and Cognitive Sciences Department of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology are laboratories that contain what, to the casual observer, look like dolehouse versions of surgical theaters. There are tiny scalpels, small drills, and miniature saws less than a quarter inch wide attached to robotic arms. Even the operating tables are tiny, as if prepared for child-sized surgeons. The rooms are always kept at a chilly 60 degrees, because a slight nip in the air steadies researchers' fingers during delicate procedures. Inside these laboratories, neurologists cut into the skulls of anesthetized rats, implanting tiny sensors that can record the smallest changes inside their brains. When the rats wake, they hardly seem to notice that there are now dozens of microscopic wires arrayed, like neurological spider webs, inside their heads. These laboratories have become the epicenter for a quiet revolution, in the science of habit formation, and the experiments unfolding here explain, how Eugene as well as you, me, and everyone else developed the behaviors, necessary to make it through each day. The rats in these labs have illuminated the complexity, that occurs inside our heads. Whenever we do something as mundane as brush our teeth, or back the car out of the driveway. And for Squire, these laboratories helped explain how Eugene managed to learn new habits. When the MIT researchers started working on habits in the 1990s, 
At about the same time that Eugene came down with his fever, they were curious about a knob of neurological tissue known as the basal ganglia. If you picture the human brain as an onion, composed of layer upon layer of cells, then the outside layers those closest to the scalp, are generally the most recent additions from an evolutionary perspective. When you dream up a new invention or laugh at a friend's joke, it's the outside parts of your brain at work. That's where the most complex thinking occurs. Deeper inside the brain and closer to the brain stem, where the brain meets the spinal column are older, more primitive structures. They control our automatic behaviors, such as breathing and swallowing, or the startle response we feel when someone leaps out from behind a bush. Toward the center of the skull is a golf ball-sized lump of tissue, that is similar to what you might find inside the head of a fish, reptile, or mammal. This is the basal ganglia, an oval of cells that, for years, scientists didn't understand very well, except for suspicions that it played a role in diseases such as Parkinson's. In the early 1990s, the MIT researchers began wondering if the basal ganglion might be integral to habits as well. They noticed that animals with injured basal ganglia, suddenly developed problems with tasks, such as learning how to run through mazes, or remembering how to open food containers. They decided to experiment by employing new micro-technologies that allowed them to observe, in minute detail, what was occurring within the heads of rats as they performed dozens of routines. In surgery, each rat had what looked like a small joystick and dozens of tiny wires inserted into its skull. Afterward, the animal was placed into a T-shaped maze with chocolate at one end. The maze was structured so that, each rat was positioned behind a partition that opened when a loud click sounded. Initially, when a rat heard the click and saw the partition disappear, it would usually wander up and down the center aisle, sniffing in corners and scratching at walls. It appeared to smell the chocolate, but couldn't figure out how to find it. When it reached the top of the tea, it often turned to the right, away from the chocolate, and then wandered left, sometimes pausing for no obvious reason. Eventually, most animals discovered the reward. But there was no discernible pattern in their meanderings. It seemed as if each rat was taking a leisurely, unthinking stroll. The probes in the rat's heads, however, told a different story. While each animal wandered through the maze, its brain and in particular, its basal ganglia worked furiously. Each time a rat sniffed the air or scratched a wall, its brain exploded with activity, as if analyzing each new scent, sight, and sound. The rat was processing information the entire time it meandered. The scientists repeated their experiment, again and again, watching how each rat's brain activity changed as it moved through the same route hundreds of times. A series of shifts slowly emerged. The rats stopped sniffing corners and making wrong turns. Instead, they zipped through the maze faster and faster. And within their brains, something unexpected occurred, as each rat learned how to navigate the maze its mental activity decreased. As the route became more and more automatic, each rat started thinking less and less. It was as if the first few times a rat explored the maze, its brain had to work at full power to make sense of all the new information. But after a few days of running the same route, the rat didn't need to scratch the walls or smell the air anymore, 
and so the brain activity associated with scratching and smelling ceased. It didn't need to choose which direction to turn, and so decision-making centers of the brain went quiet. All it had to do was recall the quickest path to the chocolate. Within a week, even the brain structures related to memory had quieted. The rat had internalized how to sprint through the maze to such a degree that it hardly needed to think at all. But that internalization run straight, hang a left, eat the chocolate relied upon the basal ganglia, the brain probes indicated. This tiny, ancient neurological structure seemed to take over as the rat ran faster and faster and its brain worked less and less. The basal ganglia was central to recalling patterns and acting on them. The basal ganglia, in other words, stored habits even while the rest of the brain went to sleep. To see this capacity in action, consider this graph, which shows activity within a rat's skull as it encounters the maze for the first time. Initially, the brain is working hard the entire time, after a week, once the route is familiar and the scurrying has become a habit, the rat's brain settles down as it runs through the maze, this process in which the brain converts a sequence of actions into an automatic routine is known as chunking, and it's at the root of how habits form. There are dozens if not hundreds of behavioral chunks that we rely on every day. Some are simple, you automatically put toothpaste on your toothbrush before sticking it in your mouth. Some, such as getting dressed or making the kids lunch, are a little more complex. Others are so complicated that it's remarkable a small bit of tissue that evolved millions of years ago can turn them into habits at all. Take the act of backing your car out of the driveway. When you first learned to drive, the driveway required a major dose of concentration, and for good reason, it involves opening the garage, unlocking the car door, adjusting the seat, inserting the key in the ignition, turning it clockwise, moving the rear view and side mirrors and checking for obstacles, putting your foot on the brake, moving the gear shift into reverse, removing your foot from the brake, mentally estimating the distance between the garage and the street while keeping the wheels aligned and monitoring for oncoming traffic, calculating how reflected images in the mirrors translate into actual distances between the bumper, the garbage cans, and the hedges, all while applying slight pressure to the gas pedal and brake, and, most likely, telling your passenger to please stop fiddling with the radio. Nowadays, however, you do all of that every time you pull onto the street with hardly any thought. The routine occurs by habit. Millions of people perform this intricate ballet every morning, unthinkingly, because as soon as we pull out the car keys, our basal ganglia kicks in, identifying the habit we've stored in our brains related to backing an automobile into the street. Once that habit starts unfolding, our grey matter is free to quiet itself or chase other thoughts, which is why we have enough mental capacity to realize that Jimmy forgot his lunchbox inside. Habits, scientists say, emerge because the brain is constantly looking for ways to save effort. Left to its own devices, the brain will try to make almost any routine into a habit, because habits allow our minds to ramp down more often. This effort-saving instinct is a huge advantage. An efficient brain requires less room, which makes for a smaller head, which makes childbirth easier and therefore causes fewer infant and mother deaths. An efficient brain also allows us to stop thinking constantly about basic behaviors, 
such as walking and choosing what to eat, so we can devote mental energy to inventing spears, irrigation systems, and, eventually, airplanes and video games. But conserving mental effort is tricky, because if our brains power down at the wrong moment, we might fail to notice something important, such as a predator hiding in the bushes or a speeding car as we pull onto the street. So our basal ganglia have devised a clever system to determine when to let habits take over. It's something that happens whenever a chunk of behavior starts or ends. To see how it works, look closely at the graph of the rat's neurological habit again. Notice that brain activity spikes at the beginning of the maze, when the rat hears the click before the partition starts moving, and again at the end, when it finds the chocolate. Those spikes are the brain's way of determining when to cede control to a habit, and which habit to use. From behind a partition, for instance, it's difficult for a rat to know if it's inside a familiar maze or an unfamiliar cupboard with a cat lurking outside. To deal with this uncertainty, the brain spends a lot of effort at the beginning of a habit looking for something AQ that offers a hint as to which pattern to use. From behind a partition, if a rat hears a click, it knows to use the maze habit. If it hears a meow, it chooses a different pattern. And at the end of the activity, when the reward appears, the brain shakes itself awake and makes sure everything unfolded as expected. This process within our brains is a three-step loop. First, there is a cue, a trigger that tells your brain to go into automatic mode and which habit to use. Then there is the routine, which can be physical or mental or emotional. Finally, there is a reward, which helps your brain figure out if this particular loop is worth remembering for the future, the habit loop over time, this loop cue, routine, reward, cue, routine, reward becomes more and more automatic. The cue and reward become intertwined until a powerful sense of anticipation and craving emerges. Eventually, whether in a chilly MIT laboratory or your driveway, a habit is born. Habits aren't destiny. As the next two chapters explain, habits can be ignored, changed, or replaced. But the reason the discovery of the habit loop is so important is that it reveals a basic truth. When a habit emerges, the brain stops fully participating in decision-making. It stops working so hard, or diverts focus to other tasks. So unless you deliberately fight a habit unless you find new routines the pattern will unfold automatically. However, simply understanding how habits work learning the structure of the habit loop makes them easier to control. Once you break a habit into its components, you can fiddle with the gears. We've done experiments where we trained rats to run down a maze until it was a habit, and then we extinguished the habit by changing the placement of the reward comma and gray beal, a scientist at MIT who oversaw many of the basal ganglia experiments, told me. Then one day, we'll put the reward in third place, and put in the rat, and, by golly, the old habit will re-emerge right away. Habits never really disappear. They're encoded into the structures of our brain, and that's a huge advantage for us, because it would be awful if we had to relearn how to drive after every vacation. The problem is that your brain can't tell the difference between bad and good habits, and so if you have a bad one, it's always lurking there, waiting for the right cues and rewards.
This explains why it's so hard to create exercise habits, for instance, or change what we eat. Once we develop a routine of sitting on the couch, rather than running, or snacking whenever we pass a donut box, those patterns always remain inside our heads. By the same rule, though, if we learn to create new neurological routines that overpower those behaviors, if we take control of the habit loop, we can force those bad tendencies into the background, just as Lisa Allen did after her Cairo trip. And once someone creates a new pattern, studies have demonstrated, going for a jog or ignoring the donuts becomes as automatic as any other habit. Without habit loops, our brains would shut down, overwhelmed by the minutiae of daily life. People whose basal ganglia are damaged by injury or disease often become mentally paralyzed. They have trouble performing basic activities, such as opening a door or deciding what to eat. They lose the ability to ignore insignificant details. One study, for example, found that patients with basal ganglia injuries couldn't recognize facial expressions, including fear and disgust, because they were perpetually uncertain about which part of the face to focus on. Without our basal ganglia, we lose access to the hundreds of habits we rely on every day. Did you pause this morning to decide whether to tie your left or right shoe first? Did you have trouble figuring out? If you should brush your teeth before or after you showered? Of course not. Those decisions are habitual, effortless. As long as your basal ganglia is intact and the cues remain constant, the behaviors will occur unthinkingly. Though when you go on vacation, you may get dressed in different ways, or brush your teeth at a different point in your morning routine without noticing it. At the same time, however, the brain's dependence on automatic routines can be dangerous. Habits are often as much a curse as a benefit. Take Eugene, for instance. Habits gave him his life back after he lost his memory. Then they took everything away again. As Larry Squire, the memory specialist, spent more and more time with Eugene, he became convinced his patient was somehow learning new behaviors. Images of Eugene's brain showed that his basal ganglia had escaped injury from the viral encephalitis. Was it possible, the scientist wondered, that Eugene, even with severe brain damage, could still use the Q-routine reward loop? Could this ancient neurological process explain, how Eugene was able to walk around the block, and find the jar of nuts in the kitchen? To test if Eugene was forming new habits, Squire devised an experiment. He took 16 different objects bits of plastic and brightly colored pieces of toys and glued them to cardboard rectangles. He then divided them into eight pairs, choice A and choice B. In each pairing, one piece of cardboard, chosen at random, had a sticker placed on the bottom that read correct. Eugene was seated at a table, given a pair of objects, and asked to choose one. Next. He was told to turn over his choice to see if there was a correct sticker underneath. This is a common way to measure memory. Since there are only 16 objects, and they are always presented in the same 8 pairings, most people can memorize which item is correct after a few rounds. Monkeys can memorize all the correct items after 8 to 10 days. Eugene couldn't remember any of the correct items, no matter how many times he did the test. He repeated the experiment twice a week for months, looking at 40 pairings each day. 
Do you know why you are here today? Question mark. A researcher asked at the beginning of one session a few weeks into the experiment. I don't think so, Eugene said. I'm going to show you some objects. Do you know why? Question mark. Am I supposed to describe them to you? or tell you what they are used for question mark Eugene couldn't recollect the previous sessions at all. But as the weeks passed, Eugene's performance improved. After 28 days of training, Eugene was choosing the correct object 85% of the time. At 36 days, he was right 95% of the time. After one test, Eugene looked at the researcher, bewildered by his success. How am I doing this question mark he asked her. Tell me what is going on in your head comma the researcher said. Do you say to yourself, I remember seeing that one question mark no comma Eugene said. It's here somehow or another he pointed to his head and the hand goes for it. To Squire, however, it made perfect sense. Eugene was exposed to a cue, a pair of objects always presented in the same combination. There was a routine, he would choose one object and look to see if there was a sticker underneath, even if he had no idea why he felt compelled to turn the cardboard over. Then there was a reward the satisfaction he received after finding a sticker, proclaiming correct. Eventually, a habit loop emerged. Eugene's habit loop. To make sure this pattern was, in fact, a habit, Squire conducted one more experiment. He took all 16 items and put them in front of Eugene at the same time. He asked him to put all the correct objects into one pile. Eugene had no idea where to begin. Gosh sakes, how to remember this question mark he asked. He reached for one object and started to turn it over. The experimenter stopped him. No, she explained. The task was to put the items in piles. Why was he trying to turn them over? That's just a habit, I think, comma, he said. He couldn't do it. The objects, when presented outside of the context of the habit loop, made no sense to him. Here was the proof Squire was looking for. The experiments demonstrated that Eugene had the ability to form new habits, even when they involved tasks or objects he couldn't remember for more than a few seconds. This explained how Eugene managed to go for a walk every morning. The cues certain trees on corners or the placement of particular mailboxes were consistent every time he went outside, so though he couldn't recognize his house, his habits always guided him back to his front door. It also explained why Eugene would eat breakfast three or four times a day, even if he wasn't hungry. As long as the right cues were present such as his radio or the morning light through his windows he automatically followed the script dictated by his basal ganglia. What's more, there were dozens of other habits in Eugene's life that no one noticed until they started looking for them. Eugene's daughter, for instance, would often stop by his house to say hello. She would talk to her father in the living room for a bit, then go into the kitchen to visit with her mother, and then leave waving goodbye on her way out the door. Eugene, who had forgotten their earlier conversation by the time she left, would get angry why was she leaving without chatting question mark and then forget why he was upset. But the emotional habit had already started, and so his anger would persist, red hot and beyond his understanding, until it burned itself out. 
Sometimes he would bang the table or curse, and if you asked him why, he'd say I don't know, but I'm mad exclamation mark Beverly told me. He would kick his chair, or snap at whoever came into the room. Then, a few minutes later, he would smile and talk about the weather. It was like, once it started, he had to finish the frustration comma she said. Squire's new experiment also showed something else, that habits are surprisingly delicate. If Eugene's cues changed the slightest bit, his habits fell apart. The few times he walked around the block, for instance, and something was different the city was doing street repairs or a windstorm had blown branches all over the sidewalk Eugene would get lost, no matter how close he was to home, until a kind neighbor showed him the way to his door. If his daughter stopped to chat with him for ten seconds before she walked out, his anger habit never emerged. Squire's experiments with Eugene revolutionized the scientific community's understanding of how the brain works by proving, once and for all, that it's possible to learn and make unconscious choices without remembering anything about the lesson or decision-making. Eugene showed that habits, as much as memory and reason, are at the root of how we behave. We might not remember the experiences that create our habits, but once they are lodged within our brains they influence how we act often without our realization. Since Squire's first paper on Eugene's habits was published, the science of habit formation has exploded into a major field of study. Researchers at Duke, Harvard, UCLA, Yale, USC, Princeton, the University of Pennsylvania, and at schools in the United Kingdom, Germany, and the Netherlands, as well as corporate scientists working for Procter & Gamble, Microsoft, Google, and hundreds of other companies are focused on understanding the neurology and psychology of habits, their strengths and weaknesses, and why they emerge and how they can be changed. Researchers have learned that cues can be almost anything, from a visual trigger such as a candy bar or a television commercial to a certain place, a time of day, an emotion, a sequence of thoughts, or the company of particular people. Routines can be incredibly complex or fantastically simple, some habits, such as those related to emotions, are measured in milliseconds. Rewards can range from food or drugs that cause physical sensations, to emotional payoffs, such as the feelings of pride that accompany praise or self-congratulation. And in almost every experiment, researchers have seen echoes of Squire's discoveries with Eugene, habits are powerful, but delicate. They can emerge outside our consciousness, or can be deliberately designed. They often occur without our permission, but can be reshaped by fiddling with their parts. They shape our lives far more than we realize they are so strong, in fact, that they cause our brains to cling to them at the exclusion of all else, including common sense. In one set of experiments, for example, researchers affiliated with the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism trained mice to press levers in response to certain cues until the behavior became a habit. The mice were always rewarded with food. Then, the scientists poisoned the food so that it made the animals violently ill, or electrified the floor, so that when the mice walked toward their reward they received a shock. The mice knew the food and cage were dangerous when they were offered the poisoned pellets in a bowl or saw the electrified floor panels, they stayed away. When they saw their old cues, however, they unthinkingly pressed the lever and ate the food, or they walked across the floor, 
even as they vomited or jumped from the electricity. The habit was so ingrained the mice couldn't stop themselves. It's not hard to find an analog in the human world. Consider fast food, for instance. It makes sense when the kids are starving and you're driving home after a long day to stop, just this once, at McDonald's or Burger King, once, the meals are inexpensive. It tastes so good. After all, one dose of processed meat, salty fries, and sugary soda poses a relatively small health risk, right? It's not like you do it all the time. But habits emerge without our permission. Studies indicate that families usually don't intend to eat fast food on a regular basis. What happens is that a once-a-month pattern slowly becomes once a week, and then twice a week as the cues and rewards create a habit until the kids are consuming an unhealthy amount of hamburgers and fries. When researchers at the University of North Texas and Yale tried to understand why families gradually increased their fast food consumption, they found a series of cues and rewards that most customers never knew were influencing their behaviors. They discovered the habit loop. Every McDonald's, for instance, looks the same. The company deliberately tries to standardize store's architecture and what employees say to customers, so everything is a consistent cue to trigger eating routines. The foods at some chains are specifically engineered to deliver immediate rewards. The fries, for instance, are designed to begin disintegrating the moment they hit your tongue, in order to deliver a hit of salt and grease as fast as possible, causing your pleasure centers to light up and your brain to lock in the pattern. All the better for tightening the habit loop. However, even these habits are delicate. When a fast food restaurant closes down, the families that previously ate there will often start having dinner at home, rather than seek out an alternative location. Even small shifts can end the pattern. But since we often don't recognize these habit loops as they grow, we are blind to our ability to control them. By learning to observe with cues and rewards, though, we can change the routines. By 2000, seven years after Eugene's illness, his life had achieved a kind of equilibrium. He went for a walk every morning. He ate what he wanted, sometimes five or six times a day. His wife knew that as long as the television was tuned to the History Channel, Eugene would settle into his plush chair and watch it regardless of whether it was airing reruns or new programs. He couldn't tell the difference. As he got older, however, Eugene's habits started impacting his life in negative ways. He was sedentary, sometimes watching television for hours at a time because he never grew bored with the shows. His physicians became worried about his heart. The doctors told Beverly to keep him on a strict diet of healthy foods. She tried, but it was difficult to influence how frequently he ate or what he consumed. He never recalled her admonitions. Even if the refrigerator was stocked with fruits and vegetables, Eugene would root around until he found the bacon and eggs. That was his routine. And as Eugene aged and his bones became more brittle, the doctors said he needed to be more careful walking around. In his mind, however, Eugene was twenty years younger. He never remembered to step carefully. All my life I was fascinated by memory, Squire told me. Then I met E.P., and saw how rich life can be even if you can't remember it. 
the brain has this amazing ability to find happiness even when the memories of it are gone. It's hard to turn that off, though, which ultimately worked against him. Beverly tried to use her understanding of habits to help Eugene avoid problems as he aged. She discovered that she could short-circuit some of his worst patterns by inserting new cues. If she didn't keep bacon in the fridge, Eugene wouldn't eat multiple, unhealthy breakfasts. When she put a salad next to his chair, he would sometimes pick at it, and as the meal became a habit, he stopped searching the kitchen for treats. His diet gradually improved. Despite these efforts, however, Eugene's health still declined. One spring day, Eugene was watching television when he suddenly shouted. Beverly ran in and saw him clutching his chest. She called an ambulance. At the hospital, they diagnosed a minor heart attack. By then the pain had passed and Eugene was fighting to get off his gurney. That night, he kept pulling off the monitors attached to his chest so he could roll over and sleep. Alarms would blare and nurses would rush in. They tried to get him to quit fiddling with the sensors by taping the leads in place and telling him they would use restraints if he continued fussing. Nothing worked. He forgot the threats as soon as they were issued. Then his daughter told a nurse to try complimenting him on his willingness to sit still, and to repeat the compliment, over and over, each time she saw him. We wanted to, you know, get his pride involved, his daughter, Carol Rays, told me. We'd say, oh, dad, you're really doing something important for science by keeping these doodads in place. The nurses started to dote on him. He loved it. After a couple of days, he did whatever they asked. Eugene returned home a week later. Then, in the fall of 2008, while walking through his living room, Eugene tripped on a ledge near the fireplace, fell, and broke his hip. At the hospital, Squire and his team worried that he would have panic attacks because he wouldn't know where he was. So they left notes by his bedside explaining what had happened and posted photos of his children on the walls. His wife and kids came every day. Eugene, however, never grew worried. He never asked why he was in the hospital. He seemed at peace with all the uncertainty by that point, said Squire. It had been fifteen years since he had lost his memory. It was as if part of his brain knew there were some things he would never understand and was okay with that. Beverly came to the hospital every day. I spent a long time talking to him, she said. I told him that I loved him, and about our kids and what a good life we had. I pointed to the pictures and talked about how much he was adored. We were married for 57 years, and 42 of those were a real, normal marriage. Sometimes it was hard, because I wanted my old husband back so much. But at least I knew he was happy. A few weeks later, his daughter came to visit. What's the plan? Eugene asked when she arrived. She took him outside in a wheelchair, onto the hospital's lawn. It's a beautiful day, Eugene said. Pretty nice weather, huh? She told him about her kids and they played with a dog. She thought he might be able to come home soon. The sun was going down. She started to get ready to take him inside. Eugene looked at her. I'm lucky to have a daughter like you, he said. She was caught off guard. 
She couldn't remember the last time he had said something so sweet. I'm lucky that you're my dad, she told him. Gosh, it's a beautiful day, he said. What do you think about the weather? That night, at one o'clock in the morning, Beverly's phone rang. The doctor said Eugene had suffered a massive heart attack and staff had done everything possible, but hadn't been able to revive him. He was gone. After his death, he would be celebrated by researchers, the images of his brain studied in hundreds of labs and medical schools. I know he would have been really proud to know how much he contributed to science, Beverly told me. He told me once, pretty soon after we got married, that he wanted to do something important with his life, something that mattered. And he did. He just never remembered any of it. The craving brain how to create new habits. One day in the early 1900s, a prominent American executive named Claude C. Hopkins was approached by an old friend with a new business idea. The friend had discovered an amazing product, he explained, that he was convinced would be a hit. It was a toothpaste, a minty, frothy concoction he called Pepsodent. There were some dicey investors involved one of them had a string of busted land deals, another, it was rumored, was connected to the mob, but this venture, the friend promised, was going to be huge. If, that is, Hopkins would consent to help design a national promotional campaign. Hopkins, at the time, was at the top of a booming industry that had hardly existed a few decades earlier, advertising. Hopkins was the man, who had convinced Americans to buy Schlitz beer, by boasting that the company cleaned their bottles with live steam, while neglecting to mention that every other company used the exact same method. He had seduced millions of women, into purchasing palm olive soap by proclaiming that, Cleopatra had washed with it, despite the sputtering protests of outraged historians. He had made puffed wheat famous by saying that, it was shot from guns until the grains puffed to eight times normal size. He had turned dozens of previously unknown products colon Quaker Oats, Goodyear tires, the Bissell carpet sweeper, Van Camp's pork and beans into household names. And in the process, he had made himself so rich that his best-selling autobiography, My Life in Advertising, devoted long passages to the difficulties of spending so much money. Claude Hopkins was best known for a series of rules he coined explaining how to create new habits among consumers. These rules would transform industries and eventually became conventional wisdom among marketers, educational reformers, public health professionals, politicians, and CEOs. Even today, Hopkins' rules influence everything from how we buy cleaning supplies to the tools governments use for eradicating disease. They are fundamental to creating any new routine. However, when his old friend approached Hopkins about Pepsodent, the ad man expressed only mild interest. It was no secret that the health of Americans' teeth was in steep decline. As the nation had become wealthier, people had started buying larger amounts of sugary, processed foods. When the government started drafting men for World War I, so many recruits had rotting teeth that officials said poor dental hygiene was a national security risk. Yet as Hopkins knew, selling toothpaste was financial suicide. There was already an army of door-to-door -door salesmen hawking dubious tooth powders and elixirs, most of them going broke. 
The problem was that hardly anyone bought toothpaste because, despite the nation's dental problems, hardly anyone brushed their teeth. So Hopkins gave his friend's proposal a bit of thought, and then declined. Head stick with soaps and cereals, he said. I did not see a way to educate the laity in technical toothpaste theories, Hopkins explained in his autobiography. The friend, however, was persistent. He came back again and again, appealing to Hopkins' considerable ego until, eventually, the ad man gave in. I finally agreed to undertake the campaign if he gave me a six-months option on a block of stock, Hopkins wrote. The friend agreed. It would be the wisest financial decision of Hopkins' life. Within five years of that partnership, Hopkins turned Pepsodent into one of the best-known products on earth and, in the process, helped create a toothbrushing habit that moved across America with startling speed. Soon, everyone from Shirley Temple to Clark Gable was bragging about their Pepsodent smile. By 1930, Pepsodent was sold in China, South Africa, Brazil, Germany, and almost anywhere else Hopkins could buy ads. A decade after the first Pepsodent campaign, pollsters found that toothbrushing had become a ritual for more than half the American population. Hopkins had helped establish toothbrushing as a daily activity. The secret to his success, Hopkins would later boast, was that he had found a certain kind of cue and reward that fueled a particular habit. It's an alchemy so powerful that even today the basic principles are still used video game designers, food companies, hospitals, and millions of salesmen around the world. Eugene Pauly taught us about the habit loop, but it was Claude Hopkins that showed how new habits can be cultivated and grown. So what, exactly, did Hopkins do? He created a craving. And that craving, it turns out, is what makes cues and rewards work. That craving is what powers the habit loop. Throughout his career, one of Claude Hopkins' signature tactics was to find simple triggers to convince consumers to use his products every day. He sold Quaker Oats, for instance, as a breakfast cereal that could provide energy for 24 hours but only if you ate a bowl every morning. He hawked tonics that cured stomach aches, joint pain, bad skin, and womanly problems but only if you drank the medicine at symptoms first appearance. The medicine. Soon people were devouring oatmeal at daybreak, and chugging from little brown bottles, whenever they felt a hint of fatigue, which as luck would have it often happened at least once a day. To sell Pepsodent then Hopkins needed a trigger that would justify the toothpaste's daily use. He sat down with a pile of dental textbooks. It was dry reading he later wrote. But in the middle of one book I found a reference to the mucin plaques on teeth which I afterward called the film. That gave me an appealing idea. I resolved to advertise, this toothpaste as a creator of beauty. To deal with that cloudy film. In focusing on tooth film Hopkins was ignoring the fact that, this same film has always covered people's teeth and hadn't seemed to bother anyone. The film is a naturally occurring membrane that builds up on teeth regardless of what you eat or how often you brush. People had never paid much attention to it and there was little reason why they should you can get rid of the film by eating an apple running your finger over your teeth brushing or vigorously swirling liquid around your mouth. Toothpaste didn't do anything to help remove the film. 
In fact one of the leading dental researchers of the time said that all toothpaste particularly Pepso Dent were worthless. That didn't stop Hopkins from exploiting his discovery. Here he decided was a cue that could trigger a habit. Soon cities were plastered with Pepsodent ads. Just run your tongue across your teeth read one. You'll feel a film tats what makes your teeth look off color and invites decay. Note how many pretty teeth are seen everywhere read another ad featuring smiling beauties. Millions are using a new method of teeth cleansing. Why would any woman have dingy film on her teeth Pepsodent removes the film The brilliance of these appeals was that they relied upon a cute tooth film that was universal and impossible to ignore. Telling someone to run their tongue across their teeth it turned out was likely to cause them to run their tongue across their teeth. And when they did they were likely to feel a film. Hopkins had found a cue that was simple had existed for, ages and was so easy to trigger that an advertisement could cause people to comply automatically. Moreover the reward as Hopkins envisioned it was even more enticing. Who after all doesn't want to be more beautiful who doesn't want a prettier smile particularly when all it takes is a quick brush with Pepsodent Hopkins' conception of the Pepsodent habit loop after the campaign launched a quiet week passed. Then too. In the third week demand exploded. There were so many orders for Pepsodent that the company couldn't keep up. In three years the product went international and Hopkins was crafting ads in Spanish German and Chinese. Within a decade Pepsodent was one of the top selling goods in the world and remained America's best selling toothpaste for more than 30 years. Before Pepsodent appeared only 7% of Americans had a tube of toothpaste in their medicine chests. A decade after Hopkins' ad campaign went nationwide that number had jumped to 65%. By the end of World War II the military downgraded concerns about recruits' teeth because so many soldiers were brushing every day. I made for myself a million dollars on Pepsodent Hopkins wrote a few years after the product appeared on shelves. The key he said was that he had learned the right human psychology. That psychology was grounded in two basic rules first find a simple and obvious cue. Second, clearly define the rewards. If you get those elements right Hopkins promised it was like magic. Look at Pepsodent he had identified a cue tooth film and a reward beautiful teeth that had persuaded millions to start a daily ritual. Even today Hopkins' rules are a staple of marketing textbooks and the foundation of millions of ad campaigns. And those same principles have been used to create thousands of other habits often without people realizing how closely they are hewing to Hopkins' formula. Studies of people who have successfully started new exercise routines for instance show they are more likely to stick with a workout plan if they choose a specific cue such as running as soon as they get home from work and a clear reward such as a beer or an evening of guilt-free television. Research on dieting says creating new food habits requires a predetermined cue such as planning menus in advance and simple rewards for dieters when they stick to their intentions. The time has come when advertising has in some hands reached the status of a science Hopkins wrote. Advertising once a gamble has thus become under able direction one of the safest of business ventures. It's quite a boast. However, it turns out that Hopkins' two rules aren't enough. 
Therese also a third rule that must be satisfied to create a habit a rule so subtle that Hopkins himself relied on it without knowing it existed. It explains everything from why it's so hard to ignore a box of donuts to how a morning jog can become a nearly effortless routine. Jog the scientists and marketing executives at Procter Gamble were gathered around a beat-up table in a small windowless room reading the transcript of an interview with a woman who owned nine cats when one of them finally said what everyone was thinking. If we get fired what exactly happens she asked. Do security guards show up and walk us out or do we get some kind of warning beforehand the team's leader a one-time rising star within the company named Drake Stimson stared at her. I don't know he said. His hair was a mess. His eyes were tired. I never thought things would get this bad. They told me running, this project was a promotion. It was 1996 and the group at the table was finding out despite Claude Hopkins's assertions how utterly unscientific the process of selling something could become. They all worked for one of the largest consumer goods firms on earth the company behind Pringles potato chips oil of Olay Bounty paper towels Covergirl Cosmetics Dawn Downey and Duracell as well as dozens of other brands. PG collected more data than almost any other merchant on earth and relied on complex statistical methods to craft their marketing campaigns. The firm was incredibly good at figuring out how to sell things. In the clothes washing market alone PGS products cleaned one out of every two laundry loads in America. Its revenues topped 35 billion per year. However Stimson's team which had been entrusted with designing the ad campaign for one of PGS most promising new products was on the brink of failure. The company had spent millions of dollars developing a spray that could remove bad smells from almost any fabric. And the researchers in that tiny windowless room had no idea how to get people to buy it. The spray had been created about three years earlier when one of PGS chemists was working with a substance called hydroxypropyl beta-cyclodextrin or HPBCD in a laboratory. The chemist was a smoker. His clothes usually smelled like an ashtray. One day after working with HPBCD his wife greeted him at the door when he got home. Did you quit smoking she asked him. No he said. He was suspicious. She had been harassing him to give up cigarettes for years. This seemed like some kind of reverse psychology trickery. You don't smell like smoke is all she said. The next day he went back to the lab and started experimenting with HPBCD and various scents. Soon he had hundreds of vials containing fabrics that smelled like wet dogs cigars sweaty socks Chinese food musty shirts and dirty towels. When he put HPBCD in water and sprayed it on the samples the scents were drawn into the chemicals molecules. After the mist dried the smell was gone. When the chemist explained his findings to PGS executives they were ecstatic. For years market research had said that consumers were clamoring for something that could get rid of bad smells not mask them but eradicate them altogether. When one team of researchers had interviewed customers they found that many of them left their blouses or slacks outside after a night at a bar or party. My clothes smell like cigarettes when I get home but I don't want to pay for dry cleaning every time I go out one woman said. PG Sensing an Opportunity launched a top-secret project to turn HPBCD into a viable product. 
They spent millions perfecting the formula finally producing a colorless odorless liquid that could wipe out almost any foul odor. The science behind the spray was so advanced that NASA would eventually use it to clean the interiors of shuttles after they returned from space. The best part was that it was cheap to manufacture didn't leave stains and could make any stinky couch old jacket or stained car interior smell well scentless. The project had been a major gamble but PG was now poised to earn billions if they could come up with the right marketing campaign. They decided to call it Febreze and asked Stimson a 31-year-old wonderkind with a background in math and psychology to lead the marketing team. Stimson was tall and handsome with a strong chin a gentle voice and a taste for high-end meals. I'd rather my kids smoke tweed than Nate in McDonald's he once told a colleague. Before joining PG he had spent five years on Wall Street building mathematical models for choosing stocks. When he relocated to Cincinnati where PG was headquartered he was tapped to help run important business lines including bounce fabric softener and downy dryer sheets. But Febreze was different. It was a chance to launch an entirely new category of product to add something to a consumer's shopping cart that had never been there before. All Stimson needed to do was figure out how to make Febreze into a habit and the product would fly off the shelves. How tough could that be Stimson and his colleagues decided to introduce Febreze in a few test market Phoenix Salt Lake City and Boise. They flew in and handed out samples and then asked people if they could come by their homes. Over the course of two months they visited hundreds of households. Their first big breakthrough came when they visited a park ranger in Phoenix. She was in her late twenties and lived by herself. Her job was to trap animals that wandered out of the desert. She caught coyotes raccoons the occasional mountain lion. And skunks. Lots and lots of skunks. Which often sprayed her when they were caught. Im single and I'd like to find someone to have kids with the ranger told Stimson and his colleagues while they sat in her living room. I go on a lot of dates. I mean I think him attractive you know him smart and I feel like him a good catch. But her love life was crippled she explained because everything in her life smelled like skunk. Her house her truck her clothing her boots her hands her curtains. Even her bed. She had tried all sorts of cures. She bought special soaps and shampoos. She burned candles and used expensive carpet shampooing machines. None of it worked. When him on a date he'll get a whiff of something that smells like skunk and he'll start obsessing about it she told them. He'll start wondering does he smell it what if I bring him home and he wants to leave I went on four dates last year with a really nice guy a guy I really liked and I waited forever to invite him to my place. Eventually, he came over and I thought everything was going really well. Then the next day he said he wanted to take a break. He was really polite about it but I keep wondering was it the smell well I'm glad you got a chance to try Febreze Stimson said. How you like it she looked at him. She was crying. I want to thank you she said. This spray has changed my life. After she had received samples of Febreze she had gone home and sprayed her couch. She sprayed the curtains the rug the bedspread her jeans her uniform the interior of her car. The bottle ran out so she got another one and sprayed everything else. I've asked all of my friends to come over the woman said. They can't smell it anymore. The skunk is gone. 
By now she was crying so hard that one of Stimson's colleagues was patting her on the shoulder. Thank you so much the woman said. I feel so free. Thank you. This product is so important. Stimson sniffed the air inside her living room. He couldn't smell anything. We're going to make a fortune with this stuff he thought. Stimson and his team went back to PG headquarters and started reviewing the marketing campaign they were about to roll out. The key to selling Febreze they decided was conveying that sense of relief the park ranger felt. They had to position Febreze as something that would allow people to rid themselves of embarrassing smells. All of them were familiar with Claude Hopkins's rules or the modern incarnations that filled business school textbooks. They wanted to keep the ads simple find an obvious cue and clearly define the reward. They designed two television commercials. The first showed a woman talking about the smoking section of a restaurant. Whenever she eats there her jacket smells like smoke. A friend tells her if she uses Febreze it will eliminate the odor. The cue the smell of cigarettes. The reward odor eliminated from clothes. The second ad featured a woman worrying about her dog Sophie who always sits on the couch. Sophie will always smell like Sophie she says but with Febreze now my furniture doesn't have to. The cubet smells which are familiar to the 70 million households with animals. The reward a house that doesn't smell like a kennel. Stimson and his colleagues began airing the advertisements in 1996 in the same test cities. They gave away samples put advertisements in mailboxes and paid grocers to build mountains of Febreze near cash registers. Then they sat back anticipating how they would spend their bonuses. A week passed. Then two. A month. Two months. Sales started small and got smaller. Panic the company sent researchers into stores to see what was happening. Shelves were filled with Febreze bottles that had never been touched. They started visiting housewives who had received free samples. Oh yes one of them told a PG researcher. The spray I remember it. Let's see. The woman got down on her knees in the kitchen and started rooting through the cabinet underneath the sink. I used it for a while but then I forgot about it. I think it's back here somewhere. She stood up. Maybe it's in the closet she walked over and pushed aside some brooms. Yes here it is in the back see it's still almost full. Did you want it back for Breeze was a dud. For Stimson, this was a disaster. Rival executives in other divisions sensed an opportunity in his failure. He heard whispers that some people were lobbying to kill Febreze and get him reassigned to Nikki Clark Hair Products the consumer goods equivalent of Siberia. One of PGS divisional presidents called an emergency meeting and announced they had to cut their losses on Febreze before board members started asking questions. Stimson's boss stood up and made an impassioned plea. Terry's still a chance to turn everything around he said. At the very least let's ask the PhDs to figure out what's going on. PG had recently snapped up scientists from Stanford Carnegie Mellon and elsewhere who were supposed experts in consumer psychology. The division's president agreed to give the product a little more time. So a new group of researchers joined Stimson's team and started conducting more interviews. Their first inkling of why Febreze was failing came when they visited a woman's home outside Phoenix. They could smell her nine cats before they went inside. 
The house's interior however was clean and organized. She was somewhat of a neat freak the woman explained. She vacuumed every day and didn't like to open her windows since the wind blew in dust. When Stimson and the scientists walked into her living room where the cats lived the scent was so overpowering that one of them gagged. What do you do about the cat smell a scientist asked the woman. It's usually not a problem she said. How often do you notice a smell oh about once a month the woman replied. The researchers looked at one another. Do you smell it now a scientist asked. No she said. The same pattern played out in dozens of other smelly homes the researchers visited. People couldn't detect most of the bad smells in their lives. If you live with nine cats you become desensitized to their scent. If you smoke cigarettes it damages your olfactory capacities so much that you can't smell smoke anymore. Scents are strange even the strongest fade with constant exposure. That's why no one was using Febreze Stimson realized. The product skew thing that was supposed to trigger daily use was hidden from the people who needed it most. Bad scents simply weren't noticed frequently enough to trigger a regular habit. As a result Febreze ended up in the back of a closet. The people with the greatest proclivity to use the spray never smelled the odors that should have reminded them the living room needed a spritz. Stimson's team went back to headquarters and gathered in the windowless conference room re-reading the transcript of the woman with nine cats. The psychologist asked what happens if you get fired. Stimson put his head in his hands. If he couldn't sell Febreze to a woman with nine cats he wondered who could he sell it to how do you build a new habit when Terry's no cue to trigger usage and when the consumers who most need it don't appreciate the reward 3. The laboratory belonging to Wolfram Schultz a professor of neuroscience at the University of Cambridge is not a pretty place. His desk has been alternately described by colleagues as a black hole where documents are lost forever and a petri dish where organisms can grow undisturbed and in wild proliferation for years. When Schultz needs to clean something which is uncommon he doesn't use sprays or cleansers. He wets a paper towel and wipes hard. If his clothes smell like smoke or cat hair he doesn't notice. Or care. However the experiments that Schultz has conducted over the past 20 years have revolutionized our understanding of how cues rewards and habits interact. He has explained why some cues and rewards have more power than others and has provided a scientific roadmap that explains why Pepsodent was a hit how some dieters and exercise buffs managed to change their habits so quickly and in the end what it took to make Febreze sell. In the 1980s Schultz was part of a group of scientists studying the brains of monkeys as they learned to perform certain tasks such as pulling on levers or opening clasps. Their goal was to figure out which parts of the brain were responsible for new actions. One day I noticed, this thing that is interesting to me Schultz told me. He was born in Germany and now when he speaks English sounds a bit like Arnold Schwarzenegger if the Terminator were a member of the Royal Society. A few of the monkeys we watched loved apple juice and the other monkeys loved grape juice and so I began to wonder what is going on inside those little monkey heads why do different rewards affect the brain in different ways Schultz began a series of experiments to decipher how rewards work on a neurochemical level. 
As technology progressed he gained access in the 1990s to devices similar to those used by the researchers at MIT. Rather than rats however, Schultz was interested in monkeys like Julio and Nate Pound macaque with hazel eyes who had a very thin electrode inserted into his brain that allowed Schultz to observe neuronal activity as it occurred. One day Schultz positioned Julio on a chair in a dimly lit room and turned on a computer monitor. Julio's job was to touch a lever whenever colored shapes small yellow spirals red squiggles blue lines appeared on the screen. If Julio touched the lever when a shape appeared a drop of blackberry juice would run down a tube hanging from the ceiling and onto the monkey's lips. Julio liked blackberry juice. At first Julio was only mildly interested in what was happening on the screen. He spent most of his time trying to squirm out of the chair. But once the first dose of juice arrived Julio became very focused on the monitor. As the monkey came to understand through dozens of repetitions that the shapes on the screen were a cue for, a routine touch the lever that resulted in a reward blackberry juice he started staring at the screen with a laser-like intensity. He didn't squirm. When a yellow squiggle appeared he went for the lever. When a blue line flashed he pounced. And when the juice arrived Julio would lick his lips contentedly. Julio's reward response when he receives the juice as Schultz monitored the activity within Julio's brain he saw a pattern emerge. Whenever Julio received his reward his brain activity would spike in a manner that suggested he was experiencing happiness. A transcript of that neurological activity shows what it looks like when a monkey's brain says in essence I got a reward Schultz took Julio through the same experiment again and again recording the neurological response each time. Whenever Julio received his juice the I got a reward pattern appeared on the computer attached to the probe in the monkey's head. Gradually from a neurological perspective Julio's behavior became a habit. Julio's habit loop what was most interesting to Schultz however was how things changed as the experiment proceeded. As the monkey became more and more practiced at the behavior as the habit became stronger and stronger Julio's brain began anticipating the blackberry juice. Schultz's probes started recording the I got a reward pattern the instant Julio saw the shapes on the screen before the juice arrived now Julio's reward response occurs before the juice arrives in other words the shapes on the monitor had become a cue not just for pulling a lever but also for a pleasure response inside the monkey's brain. Julio started expecting his reward as soon as he saw the yellow spirals and red squiggles. Then Schultz adjusted the experiment. Previously Julio had received juice as soon as he touched the lever. Now sometimes the juice didn't arrive at all even if Julio performed correctly. Or it would arrive after a slight delay. Or it would be watered down until it was only half as sweet. When the juice didn't arrive or was late or diluted Julio would get angry and make unhappy noises or become mopey. And within Julio's brain Schultz watched a new pattern emerge craving. When Julio anticipated juice but didn't receive it a neurological pattern associated with desire and frustration erupted inside his skull. When Julio saw the cue he started anticipating a juice-fueled joy. But if the juice didn't arrive the joy became a craving that if unsatisfied drove Julio to anger or depression. Researchers in other labs have found similar patterns. Other monkeys were trained to anticipate juice whenever they saw a shape on a screen. Then researchers tried to distract them. 
They opened the lab's door so the monkeys could go outside and play with their friends. They put food in a corner so the monkeys could eat if they abandoned the experiment. For those monkeys who hadn't developed a strong habit the distractions worked. They slid out of their chairs left the room and never looked back. They hadn't learned to crave the juice. However once a monkey had developed a habit once its brain anticipated the reward the distractions held no allure. The animal would sit there watching the monitor and pressing the lever over and over again regardless of the offer of food or the opportunity to go outside. The anticipation and sense of craving was so overwhelming that the monkeys stayed glued to their screens the same way a gambler will play slots long after he's lost his winnings. This explains why habits are so powerful they create neurological cravings. Most of the time these cravings emerge so gradually that we're not really aware they exist so we're often blind to their influence. But as we associate cues with certain rewards a subconscious craving emerges in our brains that starts the habit loop spinning. One researcher at Cornell for instance found how powerfully food and scent cravings can affect behavior when he noticed how Cinnabon stores were positioned inside shopping malls. Most food sellers locate their kiosks in food courts but Cinnabon tries to locate their stores away from other food stalls. Why because Cinnabon executives want the smell of cinnamon rolls to waft down hallways and around corners uninterrupted so that shoppers will start subconsciously craving a roll. By the time a consumer turns a corner and sees the Cinnabon store that craving is a roaring monster inside his head and hell reach unthinkingly for his wallet. The habit loop is spinning because a sense of craving has emerged. There is nothing programmed into our brains that makes us see a box of donuts and automatically want a sugary treat Schultz told me. But once our brain learns that a donut box contains yummy sugar and other carbohydrates it will start anticipating the sugar high. Our brains will push us toward the box. Then if we don't eat the donut we'll feel disappointed. To understand, this process consider how Julio's habits emerged. First he saw a shape on the screen over time Julio learned that the appearance of the shape meant it was time to execute a routine. So he touched the lever as a result Julio received a drop of blackberry juice. That's basic learning. The habit only emerges once Julio begins craving the juice when he sees the cue. Once that craving exists Julio will act automatically. Hell follow the habit Julio's habit loop. This is how new habits are created by putting together a cue a routine and a reward and then cultivating a craving that drives the loop. Take for instance smoking. When a smoker sees a cue a pack of Marlboro her brain starts anticipating a hit of nicotine. Just the sight of cigarettes is enough for the brain to crave a nicotine rush. If it doesn't arrive the craving grows until the smoker reaches unthinkingly for a Marlboro. Or take email. When a computer chimes or a smartphone vibrates with a new message the brain starts anticipating the momentary distraction that opening an email provides. That expectation if unsatisfied can build until a meeting is filled with antsy executives checking their buzzing blackberries under the table even if they know it's probably only their latest fantasy football results. On the other hand if someone disables the buzzing and thus removes the queue people can work for hours without thinking to check their inboxes. 
Scientists have studied the brains of alcoholics, smokers and overeaters and have measured how their neurologized structures of their brains and the flow of neurochemicals inside their skulls changes as their cravings became ingrained. Particularly strong habits wrote two researchers at the University of Michigan produce addiction-like reactions so that wanting evolves into obsessive craving that can force our brains into autopilot even in the face of strong disincentives including loss of reputation job home and family. However, these cravings don't have complete authority over us. As the next chapter explains there are mechanisms that can help us ignore the temptations. But to overpower the habit we must recognize which craving is driving the behavior. If we're not conscious of the anticipation then we're like the shoppers who wander as if drawn by an unseen force into Cinnabon. To understand the power of cravings in creating habits consider how exercise habits emerge. In 2002 researchers at New Mexico State University wanted to understand why people habitually exercise. They studied 266 individuals most of whom worked out at least three times a week. What they found was that many of them had started running or lifting weights almost on a whim or because they suddenly had free time or wanted to deal with unexpected stresses in their lives. However, the reason they continued why it became a habit was because of a specific reward they started to crave. In one group 92% of people said they habitually exercised because it made them feel good they grew to expect and crave the endorphins and other neurochemicals a workout provided. In another group 67% of people said that working out gave them a sense of accomplishment they had come to crave a regular sense of triumph from tracking their performances and that self-reward was enough to make the physical activity into a habit. If you want to start running each morning it's essential that you choose a simple cue like always lacing up your sneakers before breakfast or leaving your running clothes next to your bed and a clear reward such as a midday treat a sense of accomplishment from recording your miles or the endorphin rush you get from a jog. But countless studies have shown that a cue and a reward on their own aren't enough for a new habit to last. Only when your brain starts expecting the reward craving the endorphins or sense of accomplishment will it become automatic to lace up your jogging shoes each morning. The cue in addition to triggering a routine must also trigger a craving for the reward to come. Let me ask you about a problem I have I said to Wolfram Schultz the neuroscientist after he explained to me how craving emerges. I have a two-year-old and when I'm home feeding him dinner chicken nuggets and stuff like they'll reach over and eat one myself without thinking about it. It's a habit. And now I'm gaining weight. Everybody does that Schultz said. He has three children of his own all adults now. When they were young he would pick at their dinners unthinkingly. In some ways he told me we're like the monkeys. When we see the chicken or fries on the table our brains begin anticipating that food even if we're not hungry. Our brains are craving them. Frankly I don't even like this kind of food but suddenly it's hard to fight this urge. And as soon as I eat it I feel this rush of pleasure as the craving is satisfied. It's humiliating but that's how habits work. I guess I should be thankful he said because the same process has let me create good habits. I work hard because I expect pride from a discovery. I exercise because I expect feeling good afterward. I just wish I could pick and choose better. 
After their disastrous interview with the Catwoman Drake Stimson's team at PG started looking outside the usual channels for help. They began reading up on experiments such as those conducted by Wolfram Schultz. They asked a Harvard Business School professor to conduct psychological tests of Febreze's ad campaigns. They interviewed customer after customer looking for something that would give them a clue how to make Febreze a regular part of consumers' lives. One day they went to speak with a woman in a suburb near Scottsdale. She was in her forties with four kids. Her house was clean but not compulsively tidy. To the surprise of the researchers she loved Febreze. I use it every day she told them. Udo Stimson said. The house didn't seem like the kind of place with smelly problems. There weren't any pets. No one smoked. How what smells are you trying to get rid of I don't really use it for specific smells the woman said. I mean you know I've got boys. They're going through puberty and if I don't clean their rooms it smells like a locker. But I don't really use it that way. I use it for normal cleaning a couple of sprays when I'm done in a room. It's a nice way to make everything smell good as a final touch. They asked if they could watch her clean the house. In the bedroom she made her bed plumped the pillows tightened the sheets corners and then took a Febreze bottle and sprayed the smoothed comforter. In the living room she vacuumed picked up the kids shoes straightened the coffee table and sprayed Febreze on the freshly cleaned carpet. It's nice you know she said. Spraying feels like a little mini celebration when I'm done with a room. At the rate she was using Febreze Stimson estimated she would empty a bottle every two weeks. PG had collected thousands of hours of videotapes of people cleaning their homes over the years. When the researchers got back to Cincinnati some of them spent an evening looking through the tapes. The next morning one of the scientists asked the Febreze team to join him in the conference room. He queued up the tape of one woman a 26-year-old with three children making a bed. She smoothed the sheets and adjusted a pillow. Then she smiled and left the room. Did you see that the researcher asked excitedly? He put on another clip. A younger brunette woman spread out a colorful bedspread straightened a pillow and then smiled at her handiwork. There it is again the researcher said. The next clip showed a woman in workout clothes tidying her kitchen and wiping the counter before easing into a relaxing stretch. The researcher looked at his colleagues. Do you see it he asked. Each of them is doing something relaxing or happy when they finish cleaning he said. We can build off that what if a breeze was something that happened at the end of the cleaning routine rather than the beginning what if it was the fun part of making something cleaner Stimson's team ran one more test. Previously the product's advertising had focused on eliminating bad smells. The company printed up new labels that showed open windows and gusts of fresh air. More perfume was added to the recipe so that instead of merely neutralizing odors Febreze had its own distinct scent. Television commercials were filmed of women spraying freshly made beds and spritzing just laundered clothing. The tagline had been gets bad smells out of fabrics. It was rewritten as cleans life's smells. Each change was designed to appeal to a specific daily cue cleaning a room. Making a bed. Vacuuming a rug. In each one Febreze was positioned as the reward the nice smell that occurs at the end of a cleaning routine. 
most important each ad was calibrated to elicit a craving that things will smell as nice as they look when the cleaning ritual is done. The irony is that a product manufactured to destroy odors was transformed into the opposite. Instead of eliminating scents on dirty fabrics it became an air freshener used as the finishing touch once things are already clean. When the researchers went back into consumers' homes after the new ads aired and the redesigned bottles were given away they found that some housewives in the test market had started expecting craving the Febreze scent. One woman said that when her bottle ran dry she squirted diluted perfume on her laundry. If I don't smell something nice at the end it doesn't really seem clean now, she told them. The park ranger with the skunk problem sent us in the wrong direction Stimson told me. She made us think that Febreze would succeed by providing a solution to a problem. But who wants to admit their house stinks we were looking at it all wrong. No one craves scentlessness. On the other hand lots of people crave a nice smell after they've spent 30 minutes cleaning. The Febreze habit loop The Febreze relaunch took place in the summer of 1998. Within two months sales doubled. Within a year customers had spent more than 230 million on the product. Since then Febreze has spawned dozens of spin-offs air fresheners candles laundry detergents and kitchen sprays that all told now account for sales of more than 1 billion per year. Eventually, PG began mentioning to customers that in addition to smelling good Febreze can also kill bad odors. Stimson was promoted and his team received their bonuses. The formula had worked. They had found simple and obvious cues. They had clearly defined the reward. But only once they created a sense of craving the desire to make everything smell as nice as it looked did Febreze become a hit. That craving is an essential part of the formula for creating new habits that Claude Hopkins the Pepsodent ad man never recognized. V in his final years of life Hopkins took to the lecture circuit. His talks on the laws of scientific advertising attracted thousands of people. From stages he often compared himself to Thomas Edison and George Washington and spun out wild forecasts about the future flying automobiles featured prominently. But he never mentioned cravings or the neurological roots of the habit loop. After all it would be another 70 years before the MIT scientists and Wolfram Schultz conducted their experiments. So how did Hopkins manage to build such a powerful toothbrushing habit without the benefit of those insights well it turns out that he actually did take advantage of the principles eventually discovered at MIT and inside Schultz's laboratory even if nobody knew it at the time. Hopkins's experiences with Pepsodent weren't quite as straightforward as he portrays them in his memoirs. Though he boasted that he discovered an amazing cue in tooth film and bragged that he was the first to offer consumers the clear reward of beautiful teeth it turns out that Hopkins wasn't the originator of those tactics. Not by a long shot. Consider for instance some of the advertisements for other toothpastes that filled magazines and newspapers even before Hopkins knew that Pepsodent existed. The ingredients of this preparation, are especially intended to prevent deposits of tartar, from accumulating around the necks of the teeth thread and ad for doctor. Sheffield's crudentifrice that predated Pepsodent. Clean the dirty layer your white enamel is only hidden by a coating of film read an advertisement that appeared while Hopkins was looking through his dental textbooks. 
Sanital toothpaste quickly restores the original whiteness by removing film. The charm of a lovely smile depends upon the beauty of your teeth proclaimed a third ad. Beautiful satin smooth teeth are often the secret of a pretty girl's attractiveness. Use SS. White toothpaste dozens of other advertising men had used the same language as Pepsodent years before Hopkins jumped in the game. All of their ads had promised to remove tooth film and had offered the reward of beautiful white teeth. None of them had worked. But once Hopkins launched his campaign sales of Pepsodent exploded. Why was Pepsodent different because Hopkins' success was driven by the same factors that caused Julio the monkey to touch the lever and housewives to spray Febreze on freshly made beds. Pepsodent created a craving. Hopkins doesn't spend any of his autobiography discussing the ingredients in Pepsodent but the recipe listed on the toothpaste's patent application and company records reveals something interesting unlike other pastes of the period Pepsodent contained citric acid as well as doses of mint oil and other chemicals. Pepsodent's inventor used those ingredients to make the toothpaste taste fresh but they had another unanticipated effect as well. Their irritants that create a cool tingling sensation on the tongue and gums. After Pepsodent started dominating the marketplace researchers at competing companies scrambled to figure out why. What they found was that customers said that if they forgot to use Pepsodent they realized their mistake because they missed that cool tingling sensation in their mouths. They expected they craved that slight irritation. If it wasn't there their mouths didn't feel clean. Claude Hopkins wasn't selling beautiful teeth. He was selling a sensation. Once people craved that cool tingling once they equated it with cleanliness brushing became a habit. When other companies discovered what Hopkins was really selling they started imitating him. Within a few decades almost every toothpaste contained oils and chemicals that caused gums to tingle. Soon Pepsodent started getting outsold. Even today almost all toothpastes contain additives with the sole job of making your mouth tingle after you brush. The real Pepsodent habit loop consumers need some kind of signal that a product is working Tracy Sinclair who was a brand manager for Oral-B and Crest Kids toothpaste told me. We can make toothpaste taste like anything blueberries green tea and as long as it has a cool tingle people feel like their mouth is clean. The tingling doesn't make the toothpaste work any better. It just convinces people it's doing the job. Anyone can use this basic formula to create habits of her or his own. Want to exercise more choose a cue such as going to the gym as soon as you wake up and a reward such as a smoothie after each workout. Then think about that smoothie or about the endorphin rush you'll feel. Allow yourself to anticipate the reward. Eventually that craving will make it easier to push through the gym doors every day. Want to craft a new eating habit when researchers affiliated with the National Weight Control Registry project involving more than 6,000 people who have lost more than 30 pounds looked at the habits of successful dieters they found that 78% of them ate breakfast every morning a meal queued by a time of day. But most of the successful dieters also envisioned a specific reward for sticking with their diet bikini they wanted to wear or the sense of pride they felt when they stepped on the scale each day something they chose carefully and really wanted. 
they focused on the craving for that reward when temptations arose cultivated the craving into a mild obsession. And their cravings for that reward researchers found crowded out the temptation to drop the diet. The craving drove the habit loop. For companies understanding the science of cravings is revolutionary. There are dozens of daily rituals we ought to perform each day that never become habits. We should watch our salt and drink more water. We should eat more vegetables and fewer fats. We should take vitamins and apply sunscreen. The facts could not be more clear, on this last front dabbing a bit of sunscreen on your face each morning significantly lowers the odds of skin cancer. Yet while everyone brushes their teeth fewer than 10% of Americans apply sunscreen each day. Why because there is no craving that has made sunscreen into a daily habit. Some companies are trying to fix that by giving sunscreens a tingling sensation or something that lets people know they've applied it to their skin. They're hoping it will cure an expectation the same way the craving for, a tingling mouth reminds us to brush our teeth. They've already used similar tactics in hundreds of other products. Foaming is a huge reward said Sinclair the brand manager. Shampoo doesn't have to foam but we add foaming chemicals because people expect it each time they wash their hair. Same thing with laundry detergent. And toothpaste now every company adds sodium laureth sulfate to make toothpaste foam more. Therese no cleaning benefit but people feel better when Therese a bunch of suds around their mouth. Once the customer starts expecting that foam the habit starts growing. Cravings are what drive habits. And figuring out how to spark a craving makes creating a new habit easier. It's as true now as it was almost a century ago. Every night millions of people scrub their teeth in order to get a tingling feeling every morning millions put on their jogging shoes to capture an endorphin rush they've learned to crave. And when they get home after they clean the kitchen or tidy their bedrooms some of them will spray a bit of Febreze. The golden rule of habit change why transformation occurs either game clock at the far end of the field says there are 8 minutes and 19 seconds left when Tony Dungy the new head coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers one of the worst teams in the National Football League not to mention the history of professional football starts to feel a tiny glimmer of hope. It's late on a Sunday afternoon November 17, 1996. The Buccaneers are playing in San Diego against the Chargers a team that appeared in the Super Bowl the previous year. The Bucs are losing 17-16. They've been losing all game. They've been losing all season. They've been losing all decade. The Buccaneers have not won a game on the West Coast in 16 years and many of the team's current players were in grade school the last time the Bucs had a victorious season. So far this year their record is 28. In one of those games the Detroit Lions a team so bad it would later be described as putting the less in hopeless beat the Bucks 21-6 and then three weeks later beat them again 27-0. One newspaper columnist has started referring to the Bucks as America's orange doormat. ESPN is predicting that Dungy who got his job only in January could be fired before the year is done. On the sidelines however as Dungy watches his team arrange itself for the next play it feels like the sun has finally broken through the clouds. He doesn't smile. He never lets his emotions show during a game. 
but something is taking place on the field something he's been working toward for years. As the jeers from the hostile crowd of 50,000 rain down upon him Tony Dungy sees something that no one else does. He sees proof that his plan is starting to work. Tony Dungy had waited an eternity for this job. For 17 years he prowled the sidelines as an assistant coach first at the University of Minnesota then with the Pittsburgh Steelers then the Kansas City Chiefs and then back to Minnesota with the Vikings. Four times in the past decade he had been invited to interview for head coaching positions with NFL teams. All four times the interviews hadn't gone well. Part of the problem was Dungy's coaching philosophy. In his job interviews he would patiently explain his belief that the key to winning was changing players' habits. He wanted to get players to stop making so many decisions during a game he said. He wanted them to react automatically habitually. If he could instill the right habits his team would win. Period. Champions don't do extraordinary things Dungy would explain. They do ordinary things but they do them without thinking too fast for the other team to react. They follow the habits they've learned. How the owners would ask are you going to create those new habits oh no he wasn't going to create new habits Dungy would answer. Players spent their lives building the habits that got them to the NFL. No athlete is going to abandon those patterns simply because some new coach says to. So rather than creating new habits Dungy was going to change players' old ones. And the secret to changing old habits was using what was already inside players' heads. Habits are a three-step loop the cue the routine and the reward but Dungy only wanted to attack the middle step the routine. He knew from experience that it was easier to convince someone to adopt a new behavior if there was something familiar at the beginning and end. His coaching strategy embodied an axiom a golden rule of habit change that study after study has shown is among the most powerful tools for creating change. Dungy recognized that you can never truly extinguish bad habits. Rather to change a habit you must keep the old cue and deliver the old reward but insert a new routine. That's the rule if you use the same cue and provide the same reward you can shift the routine and change the habit. Almost any behavior can be transformed if the cue and reward stay the same. The golden rule has influenced treatments for alcoholism, obesity, obsessive compulsive disorders and hundreds of other destructive behaviors and understanding it can help anyone change their own habits. Attempts to give up snacking for instance will often fail unless Terry's a new routine to satisfy old cues and reward urges. A smoker usually can't quit unless she finds some activity to replace cigarettes when her nicotine craving is triggered. Four times Dungy explained his habit-based philosophy to team owners. Four times they listened politely thanked him for his time and then hired someone else. Then in 1996 the woeful buccaneers called. Dungy flew to Tampa Bay and once again laid out his plan for how they could win. The day after the final interview they offered him the job. The golden rule of habit change you can't extinguish a bad habit you can only change it. How it works use the same cue. Provide the same reward. Change the routine. Dungy's system would eventually turn the Bucks into one of the league's winningest teams. 
he would become the only coach in NFL history to reach the playoffs in 10 consecutive years the first African-American coach to win a Super Bowl and one of the most respected figures in professional athletics. His coaching techniques would spread throughout the league and all of sports. His approach would help illuminate how to remake the habits in anyone's life. But all of that would come later. Today in San Diego Dungy just wanted to win. From the sidelines Dungy looks up at the clock 819 remaining. The Bucks have been behind all game and have squandered opportunity after opportunity in typical fashion. If their defense doesn't make something happen right now this game will effectively be over. San Diego has the ball on their own 20-yard line and the Chargers quarterback Stan Humphreys is preparing to lead a drive that he hopes will put the game away. The play clock begins and Humphreys is poised to take the snap. But Dungy isn't looking at Humphreys. Instead he's watching his own players align into a formation they have spent months perfecting. Traditionally football is a game of feints and counterfeits trick plays and misdirection. Coaches with the thickest playbooks and most complicated schemes usually win. Dungy however has taken the opposite approach. He isn't interested in complication or obfuscation. When Dungy's defensive players line up it is obvious to everyone exactly which play they are going to use. Dungy has opted for this approach because in theory he doesn't need misdirection. He simply needs his team to be faster than everyone else. In football milliseconds matter. So instead of teaching his players hundreds of formations he has taught them only a handful but they have practiced over and over until the behaviors are automatic. When his strategy works his players can move with a speed that is impossible to overcome. But only when it works. If his players think too much or hesitate or second guess their instincts the system falls apart. And so far Dungy's players have been a mess. This time however as the Bucks line up on the 20-yard line something is different. Take Regan Upshaw, a Buccaneer defensive end who has settled into a three-point stance on the scrimmage line. Instead of looking up and down the line, trying to absorb as much information as possible, Upshaw is looking only at the cues that Dungy taught him to focus on. First, he glances at the outside foot of the opposite lineman, his toes are back which means he is preparing to step backward and block while the quarterback passes, next, Upshaw looks at the lineman's shoulders, rotated slightly inward, and the space between him and the next player, a fraction narrower than expected. Upshaw has practiced how to react to each of these cues so many times that, at this point, he doesn't have to think about what to do. He just follows his habits. San Diego's quarterback approaches the line of scrimmage and glances right, then left, barks the count and takes the ball. He drops back five steps and stands tall, swiveling his head, looking for an open receiver. Three seconds have passed since the play started. The stadium's eyes and the television cameras are on him. So most observers fail to see what's happening among the Buccaneers. As soon as Humphreys took the snap, Upshaw sprang into action. Within the first second of the play, he darted right, across the line of scrimmage, so fast the offensive lineman couldn't block him. Within the next second, Upshaw ran four more paces downfield, his steps a blur. In the next second, Upshaw moved three strides closer to the quarterback, his path impossible for the offensive lineman to predict. 
As the play moves into its fourth second, Humphreys, the San Diego quarterback, is suddenly exposed. He hesitates, sees Upshaw from the corner of his eye. And that's when Humphreys makes his mistake. He starts thinking. Humphreys spots a teammate, a rookie tight end named Brian Roche, 20 yards downfield. There's another San Diego receiver much closer, waving his arms, calling for the ball. The short pass is the safe choice. Instead, Humphreys, under pressure, performs a split-second analysis, cocks his arm, and heaves to Roche. That hurried decision is precisely what Dungey was hoping for. As soon as the ball is in the air, a buccaneer safety named John Lynch starts moving. Lynch's job was straightforward, when the play started, he ran to a particular point on the field and waited for his cue. There's enormous pressure to improvise in this situation. But Dungey has drilled Lynch until his routine is automatic. And as a result, when the ball leaves the quarterback's hands, Lynch is standing 10 yards from Roche, waiting. As the ball spins through the air, Lynch reads his cues, the direction of the quarterback's face mask and hands, the spacing of the receivers, and starts moving before it's clear where the ball will land. Roche, the San Diego receiver, springs forward, but Lynch cuts around him and intercepts the pass. Before Roche can react, Lynch takes off down the field toward the Chargers' end zone. The other Buccaneers are perfectly positioned to clear his route. Lynch runs 10, then 15, then 20, then almost 25 yards before he is finally pushed out of bounds. The entire play has taken less than 10 seconds. Two minutes later, the Bucks score a touchdown, taking the lead for the first time all game. Five minutes later, they kick a field goal. In between, Dungey's defense shuts down each of San Diego's comeback attempts. The Buccaneers win, 25-17, one of the biggest upsets of the season. At the end of the game, Lynch and Dungey exit the field together. It feels like something was different out there, Lynch says as they walk into the tunnel. We're starting to believe, Dungey replies. To understand how a coach's focus on changing habits could remake a team, it's necessary to look outside the world of sports. Way outside, to a dingy basement on the Lower East Side of New York City in 1934, where one of the largest and most successful attempts at wide-scale habit change was born. Sitting in the basement was a 39-year-old alcoholic named Bill Wilson. Years earlier, Wilson had taken his first drink during officer's training camp in New Bedford, Massachusetts, where he was learning to fire machine guns before getting shipped to France and World War I. Prominent families who lived near the base often invited officers to dinner, and one Sunday night, Wilson attended a party where he was served rabbit and beer. He was 22 years old and had never had alcohol before. The only polite thing, it seemed, was to drink the glass served to him. A few weeks later, Wilson was invited to another elegant affair. Men were in tuxedos, women were flirting. A butler came by and put a Bronx cocktail, a combination of gin, dry and sweet vermouth, and orange juice, into Wilson's hand. He took a sip and felt, he later said, as if he had found the elixir of life. By the mid-1930s, back from Europe, his marriage falling apart and a fortune from selling stocks vaporized, Wilson was consuming three bottles of booze a day. On a cold November afternoon, 
while he was sitting in the gloom, an old drinking buddy called. Wilson invited him over and mixed a pitcher of pineapple juice and gin. He poured his friend a glass. His friend handed it back. He'd been sober for two months, he said. Wilson was astonished. He started describing his own struggles with alcohol, including the fight he'd gotten into at a country club that had cost him his job. He had tried to quit, he said, but couldn't manage it. He'd been to detox and had taken pills. He'd made promises to his wife and joined abstinence groups. None of it worked. How, Wilson asked, had his friend done it? I got religion, the friend said. He talked about hell and temptation, sin and the devil. Realize you are licked, admit it, and get willing to turn your life over to God. Wilson thought the guy was nuts. Last summer an alcoholic crackpot, now, I suspected, a little cracked about religion, he later wrote. When his friend left, Wilson polished off the booze and went to bed. A month later, in December 1934, Wilson checked into the Charles B. Towns Hospital for Drug and Alcohol Addictions, an upscale Manhattan detox center. A physician started hourly infusions of a hallucinogenic drug called belladonna, then invoked for the treatment of alcoholism. Wilson floated in and out of consciousness on a bed in a small room. Then, in an episode that has been described at millions of meetings in cafeterias, union halls, and church basements, Wilson began writhing in agony. For days, he hallucinated. The withdrawal pains made it feel as if insects were crawling across his skin. He was so nauseous he could hardly move, but the pain was too intense to stay still. If there is a God, let him show himself. Wilson yelled to his empty room. I am ready to do anything. Anything. At that moment, he later wrote, a white light filled his room, the pain ceased, and he felt as if he were on the mountaintop, and that a wind not of air but of spirit was blowing. And then it burst upon me that I was a free man. Slowly the ecstasy subsided. I lay on the bed, but now for a time I was in another world, a new world of consciousness. Bill Wilson would never have another drink. For the next 36 years, until he died of emphysema in 1971, he would devote himself to founding, building, and spreading Alcoholics Anonymous, until it became the largest, most well-known and successful habit-changing organization in the world. An estimated 2.1 million people seek help from AA each year, and as many as 10 million alcoholics may have achieved sobriety through the group. AA doesn't work for everyone, success rates are difficult to measure, because of participants' anonymity, but millions credit the program with saving their lives. AA's foundational credo, the famous 12 steps, have become cultural lodestones incorporated into treatment programs for overeating, gambling, debt, sex, drugs, hoarding, self-mutilation, smoking, video game addictions, emotional dependency, and dozens of other destructive behaviors. The group's techniques offer, in many respects, one of the most powerful formulas for change. All of which is somewhat unexpected, because AA has almost no grounding in science or most accepted therapeutic methods. Alcoholism, of course, is more than a habit. It's a physical addiction with psychological and perhaps genetic roots. What's interesting about AA, however, is that the program doesn't directly attack many of the psychiatric or biochemical issues that researchers say are often at the core of why alcoholics drink. 
In fact, AA's methods seem to sidestep scientific and medical findings altogether, as well as the types of intervention many psychiatrists say alcoholics really need. What AA provides instead is a method for attacking the habits that surround alcohol use. AA, in essence, is a giant machine for changing habit loops. And though the habits associated with alcoholism are extreme, the lessons AA provides demonstrate how almost any habit, even the most obstinate, can be changed. Bill Wilson didn't read academic journals or consult many doctors before founding AA. A few years after he achieved sobriety, he wrote the now famous 12 steps in a rush one night while sitting in bed. He chose the number 12 because there were 12 apostles. And some aspects of the program are not just unscientific, they can seem downright strange. Take, for instance, AA's insistence that alcoholics attend 90 meetings in 90 days a stretch of time, it appears, chosen at random. Or the program's intense focus on spirituality, as articulated in Step 3, which says that alcoholics can achieve sobriety by making a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand Him. Seven of the twelve steps mention God or spirituality, which seems odd for a program founded by a one-time agnostic who, throughout his life, was openly hostile toward organized religion. AA meetings don't have a prescribed schedule or curriculum. Rather, they usually begin with a member telling his or her story, after which other people can chime in. There are no professionals who guide conversations and few rules about how meetings are supposed to function. In the past five decades, as almost every aspect of psychiatry and addiction research has been revolutionized by discoveries in behavioral sciences, pharmacology, and our understanding of the brain, AA has remained frozen in time. Because of the program's lack of rigor, academics and researchers have often criticized it. AA's emphasis on spirituality, some claimed, made it more like a cult than a treatment. In the past 15 years, however, a re-evaluation has begun. Researchers now say the program's methods offer valuable lessons. Faculty at Harvard, Yale, the University of Chicago, the University of New Mexico, and dozens of other research centers have found a kind of science within AA that is similar to the one Tony Dungy used on the football field. Their findings endorse the golden rule of habit change, AA succeeds because it helps alcoholics use the same cues, and get the same reward, but it shifts the routine. Researchers say that AA works because the program forces people to identify the cues and rewards that encourage their alcoholic habits, and then helps them find new behaviors. When Claude Hopkins was selling Pepsodent, he found a way to create a new habit by triggering a new craving. But to change an old habit, you must address an old craving. You have to keep the same cues and rewards as before, and feed the craving by inserting a new routine. Take steps 4, to make a searching and fearless inventory of ourselves, and 5, to admit to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. It's not obvious from the way they're written, but to complete those steps. Someone has to create a list of all the triggers for their alcoholic urges, said J. Scott Tonigan, a researcher at the University of New Mexico who has studied AA for more than a decade. When you make a self-inventory, you're figuring out all the things that make you drink. 
and admitting to someone else all the bad things you've done is a pretty good way of figuring out the moments where everything spiraled out of control. Then, AA asks alcoholics to search for the rewards they get from alcohol. What cravings, the program asks, are driving your habit loop? Often, intoxication itself doesn't make the list. Alcoholics crave a drink because it offers escape, relaxation, companionship, the blunting of anxieties, and an opportunity for emotional release. They might crave a cocktail to forget their worries. But they don't necessarily crave feeling drunk. The physical effects of alcohol are often one of the least rewarding parts of drinking for addicts. There is a hedonistic element to alcohol, said Ulf Müller, a German neurologist who has studied brain activity among alcoholics. But people also use alcohol because they want to forget something or to satisfy other cravings, and these relief cravings occur in totally different parts of the brain than the craving for physical pleasure. In order to offer alcoholics the same rewards they get at a bar, AA has built a system of meetings and companionship, the sponsor each member works with, that strives to offer as much escape, distraction, and catharsis as a Friday night bender. If someone needs relief, they can get it from talking to their sponsor or attending a group gathering, rather than toasting a drinking buddy. AA forces you to create new routines for what to do each night instead of drinking, said Tonegan. You can relax and talk through your anxieties at the meetings. The triggers and payoffs stay the same, it's just the behavior that changes. Keep the cue, provide the same reward, insert a new routine. One particularly dramatic demonstration of how alcoholics' cues and rewards can be transferred to new routines occurred in 2007, when Müller, the German neurologist, and his colleagues at the University of Magdeburg implanted small electrical devices inside the brains of five alcoholics who had repeatedly tried to give up booze. The alcoholics in the study had each spent at least six months in rehab without success. One of them had been through detox more than 60 times. The devices implanted in the men's heads were positioned inside their basal ganglia, the same part of the brain where the MIT researchers found the habit loop, and emitted an electrical charge that interrupted the neurological reward that triggers habitual cravings. After the men recovered from the operations, they were exposed to cues that had once triggered alcoholic urges, such as photos of beer or trips to a bar. Normally, it would have been impossible for them to resist a drink. But the devices inside their brains overrode each man's neurological cravings. They didn't touch a drop. One of them told me the craving disappeared as soon as we turned the electricity on, Muller said. Then, we turned it off, and the craving came back immediately. Eradicating the alcoholic's neurological cravings, however, wasn't enough to stop their drinking habits. Four of them relapsed soon after the surgery, usually after a stressful event. They picked up a bottle because that's how they automatically dealt with anxiety. However, once they learned alternate routines for dealing with stress, the drinking stopped for good. One patient, for instance, attended AA meetings. Others went to therapy. And once they incorporated those new routines for coping with stress and anxiety into their lives, the successes were dramatic. The man who had gone to detox 60 times never had another drink. Two other patients had started drinking at 12, were alcoholics by 18, drank every day, and now have been sober for four years.
Notice how closely this study hues to the golden rule of habit change, even when alcoholic sprains were changed through surgery, it wasn't enough. The old cues and cravings for rewards were still there, waiting to pounce. The alcoholics only permanently changed once they learned new routines that drew on the old triggers and provided a familiar relief. Some brains are so addicted to alcohol that only surgery can stop it, said Muller. But those people also need new ways for dealing with life. AA provides a similar, though less invasive, system for inserting new routines into old habit loops. As scientists have begun understanding how AA works, they've started applying the program's methods to other habits, such as two-year-old tantrums, sex addictions, and even minor behavioral tics. As AA's methods have spread, they've been refined into therapies that can be used to disrupt almost any pattern. In the summer of 2006, a 24-year-old graduate student named Mandy walked into the counseling center at Mississippi State University. For most of her life, Mandy had bitten her nails, gnawing them until they bled. Lots of people bite their nails. For chronic nail biters, however, it's a problem of a different scale. Mandy would often bite until her nails pulled away from the skin underneath. Her fingertips were covered with tiny scabs. The end of her fingers had become blunted without nails to protect them and sometimes they tingled or itched, a sign of nerve injury. The biting habit had damaged her social life. She was so embarrassed around her friends that she kept her hands in her pockets and, on dates, would become preoccupied with balling her fingers into fists. She had tried to stop by painting her nails with foul-tasting polishes or promising herself, starting right now, that she would muster the willpower to quit. But as soon as she began doing homework or watching television, her fingers ended up in her mouth. The counseling center referred Mandy to a doctoral psychology student who was studying a treatment known as habit reversal training. The psychologist was well acquainted with the golden rule of habit change. He knew that changing Mandy's nail-biting habit required inserting a new routine into her life. What do you feel right before you bring your hand up to your mouth to bite your nails? He asked her. There's a little bit of tension in my fingers, Mandy said. It hurts a little bit here, at the edge of the nail. Sometimes I'll run my thumb along, looking for hangnails, and when I feel something catch, I'll bring it up to my mouth. Then I'll go finger by finger biting all the rough edges. Once I start, it feels like I have to do all of them. Asking patients to describe what triggers their habitual behavior is called awareness training, and like AA's insistence on forcing alcoholics to recognize their cues, it's the first step in habit reversal training. The tension that Mandy felt in her nails cued her nail-biting habit. Most people's habits have occurred for so long they don't pay attention to what causes it anymore said Brad Dufresne, who treated Mandy. I've had stutterers come in, and I'll ask them which words or situations trigger their stuttering, and they won't know because they stopped noticing so long ago. Next, the therapist asked Mandy to describe why she bit her nails. At first, she had trouble coming up with reasons. As they talked, though, it became clear that she bit when she was bored. The therapist put her in some typical situations, such as watching television and doing homework, and she started nibbling. When she had worked through all of the nails, she felt a brief sense of completeness, she said. That was the habit's reward. 
a physical stimulation she had come to crave. At the end of their first session, the therapist sent Mandy home with an assignment, carry around an index card, and each time you feel the cue, attention in your fingertips, make a check mark on the card. She came back a week later with 28 checks. She was, by that point, acutely aware of the sensations that preceded her habit. She knew how many times it occurred during class or while watching television. Then the therapist taught Mandy what is known as a competing response. Whenever she felt that tension in her fingertips, he told her, she should immediately put her hands in her pockets or under her legs, or grip a pencil or something else that made it impossible to put her fingers in her mouth. Then Mandy was to search for something that would provide a quick physical stimulation, such as rubbing her arm or wrapping her knuckles on a desk, anything that would produce a physical response. The cues and rewards stayed the same. Only the routine changed. They practiced in the therapist's office for about 30 minutes and Mandy was sent home with a new assignment, continue with the index card, but make a check when you feel the tension in your fingertips and a hash mark when you successfully override the habit. A week later, Mandy had bitten her nails only three times and had used the competing response seven times. She rewarded herself with a manicure, but kept using the note cards. After a month, the nail-biting habit was gone. The competing routines had become automatic. One habit had replaced another. It seems ridiculously simple, but once you're aware of how your habit works, once you recognize the cues and rewards, you're halfway to changing it, Nathan Azrin, one of the developers of habit reversal training, told me. It seems like it should be more complex. The truth is, the brain can be reprogrammed. You just have to be deliberate about it. Today, Habit reversal therapy is used to treat verbal and physical tics, depression, smoking, gambling problems, anxiety, bedwetting, procrastination, obsessive-compulsive disorders, and other behavioral problems. And its techniques lay bare one of the fundamental principles of habits, often, we don't really understand the cravings driving our behaviors until we look for them. Mandy never realized that a craving for physical stimulation was causing her nail-biting, but once she dissected the habit, it became easy to find a new routine that provided the same reward. Say you want to stop snacking at work. Is the reward you're seeking to satisfy your hunger? Or is it to interrupt boredom? If you snack for a brief release, you can easily find another routine, such as taking a quick walk, or giving yourself three minutes on the internet, that provides the same interruption without adding to your waistline. If you want to stop smoking, ask yourself, do you do it because you love nicotine, or because it provides a burst of stimulation, a structure to your day, a way to socialize? If you smoke because you need stimulation, studies indicate that some caffeine in the afternoon can increase the odds you'll quit. More than three dozen studies of former smokers have found that identifying the cues and rewards they associate with cigarettes, and then choosing new routines that provide similar payoffs, a piece of nicorette, a quick series of push-ups, or simply taking a few minutes to stretch and relax, makes it more likely they will quit. If you identify the cues and rewards, you can change the routine. At least, most of the time. For some habits, however, there's one other ingredient that's necessary, belief. Here are the six reasons everyone thinks we can't win, 
Dunji told his Buccaneers after becoming head coach in 1996. It was months before the season started and everyone was sitting in the locker room. Dunji started listing the theories they had all read in the newspapers or heard on the radio, the team's management was messed up. Their new coach was untested. The players were spoiled. The city didn't care. Key players were injured. They didn't have the talent they needed. Those are the supposed reasons, Dungey said. Now here is a fact, nobody is going to outwork us. Dungey's strategy, he explained, was to shift the team's behaviors until their performances were automatic. He didn't believe the Buccaneers needed the thickest playbook. He didn't think they had to memorize hundreds of formations. They just had to learn a few key moves and get them right every time. However, perfection is hard to achieve in football. Every play in football, every play, someone messes up, said Herm Edwards, one of Dungey's assistant coaches in Tampa Bay. Most of the time, it's not physical. It's mental. Players mess up when they start thinking too much or second-guessing their plays. What Dungey wanted was to take all that decision-making out of their game. And to do that, he needed them to recognize their existing habits and accept new routines. He started by watching how his team already played. Let's work on the under-defense, Dungey shouted at a morning practice one day. Number 55, what's your read? I'm watching the running back and guard, said Derek Brooks, an outside linebacker. What precisely are you looking at? Where are your eyes? I'm looking at the movement of the guard, said Brooks. I'm watching the QB's legs and hips after he gets the ball and I'm looking for gaps in the line, to see if they're gonna pass and if the QB is going to throw to my side or away. In football, these visual cues are known as keys, and they're critical to every play. Dungey's innovation was to use these keys as cues for reworked habits. He knew that, sometimes, Brooks hesitated a moment too long at the start of a play. There were so many things for him to think about, is the guard stepping out of formation? Does the running back's foot indicate he's preparing for a running or passing play? That sometimes he slowed down. Dungey's goal was to free Brooks's mind from all that analysis. Like Alcoholics Anonymous, he used the same cues that Brooks was already accustomed to, but gave him different routines that, eventually, occurred automatically. I want you to use those same keys, Dungey told Brooks. But at first, focus only on the running back. That's it. Do it without thinking. Once you're in position, then start looking for the QB. This was a relatively modest shift, Brooks's eyes went to the same cues, but rather than looking multiple places at once, Dungey put them in a sequence and told him, ahead of time, the choice to make when he saw each key. The brilliance of this system was that it removed the need for decision making. It allowed Brooks to move faster, because everything was a reaction, and eventually a habit, rather than a choice. Dungey gave every player similar instructions, and practiced the formations over and over. It took almost a year for Dungey's habits to take hold. The team lost early, easy games. Sports columnists asked why the Bucks were wasting so much time on psychological quackery. But slowly, they began to improve. Eventually, the patterns became so familiar to players that they unfolded automatically when the team took the field. In Dungey's second season as coach, 
the Bucks won their first five games and went to the playoffs for the first time in 15 years. In 1999, they won the division championship. Dungy's coaching style started drawing national attention. The sports media fell in love with his soft-spoken demeanor, religious piety, and the importance he placed on balancing work and family. Newspaper stories described how he brought his sons, Eric and Jamie, to the stadium so they could hang out during practice. They did their homework in his office and picked up towels in the locker room. It seemed like, finally, success had arrived. In 2000, the Bucks made it to the playoffs again, and then again in 2001. Fans now filled the stadium every week. Sportscasters talked about the team as Super Bowl contenders. It was all becoming real. But even as the Bucks became a powerhouse, a troubling problem emerged. They often played tight, disciplined games. However, during crucial, high-stress moments, everything would fall apart. In 1999, after racking up six wins in a row at the end of the season, the Bucks blew the conference championship against the St. Louis Rams. In 2000, they were one game away from the Super Bowl when they disintegrated against the Philadelphia Eagles, losing 21-3. The next year, the same thing happened again, and the Bucks lost to the Eagles, 31-9, blowing their chance of advancing. We would practice, and everything would come together and then we'd get to a big game and it was like the training disappeared, Dungy told me. Afterward, my players would say, well, it was a critical play and I went back to what I knew, or I felt like I had to step it up. What they were really saying was they trusted our system most of the time, but when everything was on the line, that belief broke down. At the conclusion of the 2001 season, after the Bucks had missed the Super Bowl for the second straight year, the team's general manager asked Dungy to come to his house. He parked near a huge oak tree, walked inside, and 30 seconds later was fired. The Bucks would go on to win the Super Bowl the next year using Dungy's formations and players, and by relying on the habits he had shaped. He would watch on television as the coach who replaced him lifted up the Lombardi trophy. But by then, he would already be far away. About 60 people, soccer moms and lawyers on lunch breaks, old guys with fading tattoos and hipsters in skinny jeans, are sitting in a church and listening to a man with a slight paunch and a tie that complements his pale blue eyes. He looks like a successful politician, with the warm charisma of assured re-election. My name is John, he says, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, John, everyone replies. The first time I decided to get help was when my son broke his arm, John says. He's standing behind a podium. I was having an affair with a woman at work, and she told me that she wanted to end it. So I went to a bar and had two vodkas, and went back to my desk, and at lunch I went to Chili's with a friend, and we each had a few beers, and then at about two o'clock, me and another friend left and found a place with a two-for-one happy hour. It was my day to pick up the kids, my wife didn't know about the affair yet, so I drove to their school and got them, and I was driving home on a street I must have driven a thousand times, and I slammed into a stop sign at the end of the block. Up on the sidewalk and, bam, right into the sign. Sam, that's my boy, hadn't put on his seatbelt, so he flew against the windshield and broke his arm. There was blood on the dash where he hit his nose and the windshield was cracked and I was so scared. 
that's when I decided I needed help. So I checked into a clinic and then came out, and everything was pretty good for a while. For about 13 months, everything was great. I felt like I was in control and I went to meetings every couple of days, but eventually I started thinking, I'm not such a loser that I need to hang out with a bunch of drunks. So I stopped going. Then my mom got cancer, and she called me at work, almost two years after I got sober. She was driving home from the doctor's office, and she said, he told me we can treat it, but it's pretty advanced. The first thing I did after I hung up is find a bar, and I was pretty much drunk for the next two years until my wife moved out, and I was supposed to pick up my kids again. I was in a really bad place by then. A friend was teaching me to use coke, and every afternoon I would do a line inside my office, and five minutes later I would get that little drip into the back of my throat and do another line. Anyways, it was my turn to get the kids. I was on the way to their school and I felt totally fine, like I was on top of everything, and I pulled into an intersection when the light was red and this huge truck slammed into my car. It actually flipped the car on its side. I didn't have a scratch on me. I got out, and started trying to push my car over, because I figured, if I can make it home and leave before the cops arrive, I'll be fine. Of course that didn't work out, and when they arrested me for DUI they showed me how the passenger side of the car was completely crushed in. That's where Sammy usually sat. If he had been there, he would have been killed. If he had been so I started going to meetings again, and my sponsor told me that it didn't matter if I felt in control. Without a higher power in my life, without admitting my powerlessness, none of it was going to work. I thought that was bull, I'm an atheist. But I knew that if something didn't change, I was going to kill my kids. So I started working at that, working at believing in something bigger than me. And it's working. I don't know if it's God or something else, but there is a power that has helped me stay sober for seven years now and I'm in awe of it. I don't wake up sober every morning, I mean, I haven't had a drink in seven years, but some mornings I wake up feeling like I'm gonna fall down that day. Those days, I look for the higher power, and I call my sponsor, and most of the time we don't talk about drinking. We talk about life and marriage and my job, and by the time I'm ready for a shower, my head is on straight. The first cracks in the theory that Alcoholics Anonymous succeeded solely by reprogramming participants' habits started appearing a little over a decade ago and were caused by stories from alcoholics like John. Researchers began finding that habit replacement worked pretty well for many people until the stresses of life, such as finding out your mom has cancer, or your marriage is coming apart, got too high, at which point alcoholics often fell off the wagon. Academics asked why. If habit replacement is so effective, it seemed to fail at such critical moments. And as they dug into alcoholics' stories to answer that question, they learned that replacement habits only become durable new behaviors when they are accompanied by something else. One group of researchers at the Alcohol Research Group in California, for instance, noticed a pattern in interviews. Over and over again, alcoholics said the same thing, identifying cues and choosing new routines is important, but without another ingredient, the new habits never fully took hold. The secret, the alcoholics said, was God. Researchers hated that explanation. God and spirituality are not testable hypotheses. 
churches are filled with drunks who continue drinking despite a pious faith. In conversations with addicts, though, spirituality kept coming up again and again. So in 2005, a group of scientists, this time affiliated with UC Berkeley, Brown University, and the National Institutes of Health, began asking alcoholics about all kinds of religious and spiritual topics. Then they looked at the data to see if there was any correlation between religious belief and how long people stayed sober. A pattern emerged. Alcoholics who practiced the techniques of habit replacement, the data indicated, could often stay sober until there was a stressful event in their lives, at which point, a certain number started drinking again, no matter how many new routines they had embraced. However, those alcoholics who believed, like John in Brooklyn, that some higher power had entered their lives were more likely to make it through the stressful periods with their sobriety intact. It wasn't God that mattered, the researchers figured out. It was belief itself that made a difference. Once people learned how to believe in something, that skill started spilling over to other parts of their lives, until they started believing they could change. Belief was the ingredient that made a reworked habit loop into a permanent behavior. I wouldn't have said this a year ago, that's how fast our understanding is changing, said Tonigan, the University of New Mexico researcher, but belief seems critical. You don't have to believe in God, but you do need the capacity to believe that things will get better. Even if you give people better habits, it doesn't repair why they started drinking in the first place. Eventually they'll have a bad day, and no new routine is going to make everything seem okay. What can make a difference is believing that they can cope with that stress without alcohol. By putting alcoholics in meetings where belief is a given, where, in fact, belief is an integral part of the 12 steps, AA trains people in how to believe in something until they believe in the program and themselves. It lets people practice believing that things will eventually get better, until things actually do. At some point, people in AA look around the room and think, if it worked for that guy, I guess it can work for me, said Leanne Cascutas, a senior scientist at the Alcohol Research Group. There's something really powerful about groups and shared experiences. People might be skeptical about their ability to change if they're by themselves, but a group will convince them to suspend disbelief. A community creates belief. As John was leaving the AA meeting, I asked him why the program worked now, after it had failed him before. When I started coming to meetings after the truck accident, someone asked for volunteers to help put away the chairs, he told me. I raised my hand. It wasn't a big thing, it took like five minutes, but it felt good to do something that wasn't all about me. I think that started me on a different path. I wasn't ready to give in to the group the first time, but when I came back, I was ready to start believing in something back. Within a week of Dungey's firing by the box, the owner of the Indianapolis Colts left an impassioned 15-minute message on his answering machine. The Colts, despite having one of the NFL's best quarterbacks, Peyton Manning, had just finished a dreadful season. The owner needed help. He was tired of losing, he said. Dungey moved to Indianapolis and became head coach. He immediately started implementing the same basic game plan, remaking the Colts' routines and teaching players to use old cues to build reworked habits. In his first season, the Colts went 10-6 and qualified for the playoffs. 
The next season, they went 12-4 and came within one game of the Super Bowl. Dungy's celebrity grew. Newspaper and television profiles appeared around the country. Fans flew in so they could visit the church Dungy attended. His sons became fixtures in the Colts locker room and on the sidelines. In 2005, Jamie, his eldest boy, graduated from high school and went to college in Florida. Even as Dungy's successes mounted, however, the same troubling patterns emerged. The Colts would play a season of disciplined, winning football, and then under playoff pressure, choke. Belief is the biggest part of success in professional football, Dungy told me. The team wanted to believe, but when things got really tense, they went back to their comfort zones and old habits. The Colts finished the 2005 regular season with 14 wins and 2 losses, the best record in its history. Then tragedy struck. Three days before Christmas, Tony Dungy's phone rang in the middle of the night. His wife answered and handed him the receiver, thinking it was one of his players. There was a nurse on the line. Dungy's son Jamie had been brought into the hospital earlier in the evening, she said, with compression injuries on his throat. His girlfriend had found him hanging in his apartment, a belt around his neck. Paramedics had rushed him to the hospital, but efforts at revival were unsuccessful. He was gone. A chaplain flew to spend Christmas with the family. Life will never be the same again, the chaplain told them, but you won't always feel like you do right now. A few days after the funeral, Dungy returned to the sidelines. He needed something to distract himself, and his wife and team encouraged him to go back to work. I was overwhelmed by their love and support, he later wrote. As a group, we had always leaned on each other in difficult times, I needed them now more than ever. The team lost their first playoff game, concluding their season. But in the aftermath of watching Dungy during this tragedy, something changed, one of his players from that period told me. We had seen Coach through this terrible thing and all of us wanted to help him somehow. Terrible th it is simplistic, even cavalier, to suggest that a young man's death can have an impact on football games. Dungy has always said that nothing is more important to him than his family. But in the wake of Jamie's passing, as the Colts started preparing for the next season, something shifted, his players say. The team gave in to Dungy's vision of how football should be played in a way they hadn't before. They started to believe. I had spent a lot of previous seasons worrying about my contract and salary, said one player who, like others, spoke about that period on the condition of anonymity. When coach came back, after the funeral, I wanted to give him everything I could, to take away his hurt. I kind of gave myself to the team. Some men like hugging each other, another player told me. I don't. I haven't hugged my sons in a decade. But after coach came back, I walked over and I hugged him as long as I could, because I wanted him to know that I was there for him. After the death of Dungy's son, the team started playing differently. A conviction emerged among players about the strength of Dungy's strategy. In practices and scrimmages leading up to the start of the 2006 season, the Colts played tight, precise football. Most football teams aren't really teams. They're just guys who work together, a third player from that period told me. But we became a team. It felt amazing. Coach was the spark, but it was about more than him. After he came back, 
It felt like we really believed in each other, like we knew how to play together in the way we didn't before. For the Colts, a belief in their team, in Dungy's tactics and their ability to win, began to emerge out of tragedy. But just as often, a similar belief can emerge without any kind of adversity. In a 1994 Harvard study that examined people who had radically changed their lives, for instance, researchers found that some people had remade their habits after a personal tragedy, such as a divorce or a life-threatening illness. Others changed after they saw a friend go through something awful, the same way that Dungy's players watched him struggle. Just as frequently, however, there was no tragedy that preceded people's transformations. Rather, they changed because they were embedded in social groups that made change easier. One woman said her entire life shifted when she signed up for a psychology class and met a wonderful group. It opened a Pandora's box, the woman told researchers. I could not tolerate the status quo any longer. I had changed in my core. Another man said that he found new friends among whom he could practice being gregarious. When I do make the effort to overcome my shyness, I feel that it is not really me acting, that it's someone else, he said. But by practicing with his new group, it stopped feeling like acting. He started to believe he wasn't shy, and then, eventually, he wasn't anymore. When people join groups where change seems possible, the potential for that change to occur becomes more real. For most people who overhaul their lives, there are no seminal moments or life-altering disasters. There are simply communities, sometimes of just one other person, who make change believable. One woman told researchers her life transformed after a day spent cleaning toilets, and after weeks of discussing with the rest of the cleaning crew whether she should leave her husband. Change occurs among other people, one of the psychologists involved in the study, Todd Heatherton, told me. It seems real when we can see it in other people's eyes. The precise mechanisms of belief are still little understood. No one is certain why a group encountered in a psychology class can convince a woman that everything is different, or why Dungy's team came together after their coach.